BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're pleased to speak to Brother Yusuf Ponders. How are you, Akhi Yusuf? Alhamdulillah, I'm good. How are you, brother? Alhamdulillah. Happy to have you here. Yusuf is a researcher and the Lighthouse Mentoring Manager at the Sapiens Institute. He has a first-class honors bachelor's degree in philosophy. His focus has mainly been on nihilism and the meaning of life, for which he wrote a dissertation and made many videos discussing this subject. He runs a YouTube channel called Pondering Soul which focuses on philosophy and theology. He is also a co-host on the YouTube channel Thought Adventure Podcast, as well as regularly featuring on many other da'wah channels. Now, many people fail to either appreciate the true meaning of life or, even worse, embrace nihilism by having lost hope in life's meaning altogether. Now, what are some of the causes for people becoming nihilistic? And can nihilism even be overcome? And if so, what role does Islam play in this entire conversation? MashaAllah, Brother Yusuf has recently published a very thoughtful and well-researched book on this subject titled Islam and Nihilism my poison and my cure, published by the Sapiens Institute. Now, Brother Yusuf will be taking us through the main themes of his book so that we get a good overview about its contents. So without further ado, Echi Yusuf, whenever you're ready, the floor is all yours. Yeah, so Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. rajim so let me just share my my little slideshow. Can you see that all right? Yeah, perfect. All right, bismillah. So, yeah, my name, as he's mentioned, is Yusuf Pandas, and the the subject of my book is specifically nihilism and Islam, and it goes through uh, a number of stages. Um, there's a bit of information about me there. Um, I won't go into it in too much detail. Um, but yeah, so I, I was raised as a Catholic. Um, I went through some. Uh, things as a, a youth that sort of pushed me towards atheism in my teenage years. Um, I struggled with nihilism a lot as I was growing up. Um, and while I was struggling with nihilism, I sort of ran away uh, to travel the world for a little bit to try to figure out who I was, where I was going and why. Um, and so I went backpacking for about 18 months around Southeast Asia 
Um, while I was doing that, I engaged with many people from many different places, backgrounds, belief systems. I ran a bar um, as a non-Muslim, obviously, on <laughs> uh, an, an island uh, called Tiamun Island in Malaysia, which was a Muslim-populated place. Um, and while I was running it as a barman, many people come to you from all sorts of walks of life, and they'll talk to you about like all sorts of things, basically. And so I had a great opportunity to speak to lots of people uh, about many things. Um, and I also got to stay in places like Buddhist temples in Korea, in Thailand, in Myanmar or Burma, um, whichever one it is. And there was lots of information and I was being overwhelmed by a lot of it. And I was going through uh, these experiences that we're going to be talking about throughout this entire presentation. Um, and I was sort of battling with it. At the time, I hadn't really heard of nihilism. And this is a common theme as well. Many people, when they engage with my work, watch my videos or read my book, um, I, like I get a common thing where people will reach out and say, I was suffering from something. I didn't really know there was even a word from it, for it. Um, but now I know that it is nihilism or that I am or was suffering from nihilism. Um, and it's, it's a word that's not necessarily thrown around that often. It sounds a bit strange. It sounds a bit academic. Um, but it, like, at, at its core, it's it's not. It can be very common, um, and we're going to link it to many things that either you at some point in your life will experience yourself, uh, or you will at least know someone who has or is going through such things. And so it's quite a, a common thing. Um, my studies in particular, as you mentioned, was in uh, philosophy. So I did a BA at MMU in the UK. Um, and everything was, my major focus in my dissertation was nihilism. So talking about Nietzsche, uh, Viktor Frankl, who speaks a lot about the meaning of life. Um, and just that in general, along with philosophy of religion, ethics, all of that type of stuff. Um, and yeah, and you've mentioned the channels that I'm engaged with. So the flow of the book takes four major steps. Um, part one uh, is just trying to get you to understand nihilism. What is nihilism? Um, you know, what, what does it mean? What's its definitions? What, how does it work? How is it used, etc.? Uh, part two goes into the causes and the effects of nihilism. So what is it that brings nihilism on? Um, and when nihilism has come about, what is it that you're likely to see as a, an effect of that? Um, either on yourself as an individual or as a community or as a society. Um, part three, um, part four is basically Islam as an antidote. So I'm trying to put forward Islam as a solution to the problem of nihilism. But I recognize that there are certain things that get in the way um, of people even thinking of taking religion seriously at all. Um, so I put part three in there just to try to overcome uh, certain issues that I think would get in the way of people taking part four seriously. Um, it, this is not an extensive argument um, in terms of like a rationalization of uh, the Islamic theism, for example. Um, but it is trying to get over certain hurdles and I make recommendations to other books as well. So for example, if you do want like a rationalization of Islamic theism, uh, you could check out Hamza Zortzis' book, Divine Reality as being one case, um, among others, there's really good books, um, that you can get for free. So, um, Divine Reality is completely free on our website. So if you go to sapiensinstitute.org forward slash books, you can download that for free or you can get it on Amazon. Um, but there are also good books that make cases for the... Uh, divine authorship of the Quran, uh, for example, the eternal challenge, and for the prophethood of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, like the forbidden prophecies, both of whom were authored by a brother called Abu Zakaria, again, uh, accessible for free 
online. So there's many ways that you can sort of try to approach um, positive argumentation for Islam. Um, the, the aim of this book isn't to do that. It's just to talk about a phenomena that occurs, and it's very common in Western society in particular, in the modern world. Um, and you'll see why as we go through this. Uh, and it's basically trying to take a different approach because I think it's not one that's often talked about. People often get bogged down in sort of abstract philosophical conversation. Um, and ironically, they don't even realize that that kind of discussion, depending on, on, on who you're dealing with, can give rise to feelings of nihilism in the person you're engaging with. And you'll see this where people are sort of overwhelmed with so much. Um, or they feel incapable of being able to go through all of the arguments that have been presented or even be able to process them properly. Um, they fall back accidentally, not necessarily um, as a point of choice, um, but like a sickness, they become ill with nihilism. Um, and so this is trying to show that to the reader. Um, it, it is. It doesn't have a particular age group in mind or anything like that. The book is for absolutely everyone. Um, although what I do recognize is that um, this is mainly going to probably be read by Muslims, um, but I'm hoping it could be a means of like building a bridge between Muslims and their non-Muslim friends. So if they know someone who's dealing with these type of things or is overwhelmed or if they're recognizing that um, becoming too philosophical or too argumentative with people isn't helping them, um, that this might be a means of them being able to sort of diagnose what sort of issues they're having. Um, and could also be, inshallah, like um, a, a bridge to some sort of healthier conversation, recognizing more fundamental problems rather than getting caught in the sticks uh, of general debate or argumentation that it usually ends up falling down into. Um, so that's what the overcoming the obstacles um, bit is trying to do in terms of um, just getting people to look at this a little bit differently, at least be open to the idea that Islam is a potential candidate for an antidote to these problems. Um, and then obviously part four just sort of goes into why Islam in particular deals with these things. So we'll begin with just giving you an overview of the parts. Uh, obviously, if you want a more in-depth view of each of this, and I, I'm going to try to run through it relatively quickly compared to what you would do if you were to read the book. Um, but you can get it for free on our website as well. Uh, the same place you could get Divine Reality, uh, sapiensinstitute.org forward slash books. You can get the PDF there. Um, or if you like paperback, we've got it the absolute minimal we could put it on for on Amazon, um, whatever it costs us to just sort of get it printed and the charges that Amazon give us. So, so it's a non-profit item. So you can check that there. But yeah, so we Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. We'll go over this part one, beginning to understand nihilism. So 
the philosophy of nihilism is quite a broad subject and it covers many different things. Um, but generally speaking, it is just this idea that life is meaningless. It comes from the Greek nihil, which means nothing and ism. So like nothingism, that life, that the universe, that everything in it has no purpose. It is completely pointless. Um, there's no grand meaning in any of it. And humans are naturally driven by purpose and the pursuit of meaning. And if any of you have read things like Viktor Frankl, he describes us as having a will to meaning and that this is ingrained into every human being that they, they need to feel as if their life has some sort of significance, as if it has some sort of purpose. And insofar as this is natural to the human being, nihilism stating the fact that the life is meaningless um, is to say nihilism, in essence, negates our humanity. If our humanity is that we have this uh, this urge or this sense towards meaning. Um, there's some general definitions. So you can get one on Britannica Encyclopedia uh, that gives it as following. So rejection of all meaning, purpose, and the disintegration of traditional morality. Um, we have another one here by uh, David Matheson in The Incoherence of Soft Nihilism, where he says, no lives are all things considered worth living. Um, and you can see from these definitions that the underlying theme, more specifically, is pessimism. That is, there is a severe lack of hope in this. It is a sort of a view that like the worst possible outcome is the case, that you know, you're like, your life is completely pointless. You are this speck, as it's described, in the soup of the universe. Um, and whether you were there or not, and whatever actions that you may do in your life, um, however significant you may think they are, or however significant others may think they are, in the grand scheme of things, they barely leave a scratch on the surface of the hood of uh, the car that is the universe. And nihilists need not necessarily be atheists, right? No, no, yeah. It, it, Muslims can experience nihilism as well. But theists can experience it. Um, because it, it's a it's a hopelessness. So it's not necessarily that um, you believe or don't believe in God. It's just that like you don't feel it's a, you'll notice as these words will get used a lot. This I don't feel like my life has any meaning. I don't feel like I'm here for any re real purpose. Um, people may believe in God, but they're not necessarily practicing. They don't really understand the Quran and the Sunnah. They've not studied Islam. They don't know what their purpose is, because, you know, there's many people that just read the Quran in Arabic, but they don't understand the words that they're reading because they don't speak Arabic. Um, so they don't really develop a connection to the religion. Maybe they're just born into the family. It's something they inherit. Um, they grow up with it. They never really question why they are that. Um, and, you know, the more they get sort of exposed to all of these different ideas on the Internet, um, they, they just become confused and they, they don't really understand who they are or why they are or where they're going or why they're going the way they are. Um, so it, it, it is, and as we're going to go through it, we're going to talk about it, it being a, um, like a sickness, like an illness that people just end up developing. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, um, it's the underlying theme of all of it is just this pessimism, a lack of hope. Um, and there's two major figures in particular that sort of pushed this idea of uh nihilism arthur schopenhauer not necessarily so explicitly um although his work was focused mainly on pessimism so he has like a whole essay collection on just pessimism um and he was a huge influence of friedrich nietzsche 
who's like the forefather of nihilism as a you know as, as a philosophy as it developed um you know he he wrote books sort of talking about this um ad infinitum almost and but like a major part of his work and of his inspiration was the character of Arthur Schopenhauer um whose major theme was just this he was like an ultimate pessimist if um I should have brought a picture of him up but like it just if you google image Arthur Schopenhauer you can just see the pessimism seeping through is um and in his work especially even more so but these two uh, major figures um but the, I guess the first question is is like why why should we care what's the point of talking about nihilism I've never heard of this word before why honestly should I really even give it any of my attention um why should I bother yeah, I think this is probably the most important beginning point um because if it's not really that important then there's no point wasting your time reading my book or looking into it at all um so why why should we care and the reason i'm going to tell you why you should care is linked to what i've already said a moment ago is that you will at some point experience this yourself directly or indirectly i like someone you'll know will end up dealing with this because it's an increasing phenomena around the globe um and again as we go through this uh and I, I start showing you certain statistics and things like that um and certain books you'll notice that it's, it is definitely going to be something that is going to impact you in some way at some point in your life if it hasn't yet already um you're one of the lucky few and uh i would warn you or at least call you to at least be preparing yourself to expect it at some point um if you are planning to have a family if you have children and they're growing up in the world where the conditions that cause nihilism are present, um, it, it's very likely that they could at some point experience it themselves as well. Um, or if they don't themselves, that they will have friends that they'll have to try to deal with that will be experiencing it. But it's going to happen. And there may be people that you know currently experiencing some form of nihilism, um, but they're just they they're not open about it. They're not expressing it, like a huge problem within uh, the manosphere, quote unquote, uh, however you want to refer to it, um, is that the men just do not tend to be open about their problems. They bottle them up, um, keep them quite private. Uh, and especially within religious communities as well, obviously there's a bit of a taboo about expressing such things, about expressing you feeling uh, life is meaningless. Um, they have fears of being ostracized by the community by expressing such things as they fear it might um, be conceived of as kufr or as disbelief in some way. Um, and so they just sort of bottle it up and don't really talk about it. Um, but I make a, a direct connection between nihilism and suicide and depression. Um, because I, I say both, like if you are at a point where you think that you should commit suicide, what is sort of underlying that is the idea that your life is not worth continuing. That life isn't meaningful enough that your suffering isn't, you, you cannot conceive of your suffering as having a greater purpose. You can't bear it. Um, and so you see death as an escape. You see death as something that can help you to overcome the feelings of meaninglessness that you may be going through. Um, and so if suicide is a problem and if depression is a problem and you are concerned about these things or there's people in your community or within your family or your friendship circle that are dealing with these kinds of things. Um, th there is a connection between these and the feeling of meaninglessness and the, the, the problems of nihilism. 
as they are presented. Um, and so it is important if these things are important, because if nihilism is the cause of these things, um, then you should definitely be concerned with trying to prevent nihilism, um, or at least understanding it so that you can at least try to think of an antidote or think of ways of uh, dealing with the issues. Um, and it, it goes even further than just suicide and depression, but even goes as far as antinatalism, um, which is becoming a lot more pro- popular um, as time moves forward. Antinatalism is just more specifically not only that um, life is not worth living, but also that it's not even worth beginning. Um, that is, it's this anti, uh, anti-parenthood. Like it's people that want to go child-free. Uh, they no longer want to have children. Um, and Antinatalists, th- right? Yeah, yeah, um, and they 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 just they they don't want to populate. They don't want to bring new beings into the world um, because they feel that life is just that bad. That it's not worth giving it to people. That it's somehow an injustice to force life on an individual. Um, and this has greater implications in the long run as well. Um, somewhat off the topic, but still connected somehow. Um, is how, for example, a society um, that is bottom heavy that is that has more children than it does elderly um or more young than it does the old the burden of looking after the elderly is shared if you've got like uh, you know a, a couple mum and dad and they have 10 11 children the the burden of looking after mum and dad is much easier if that's shared between a lot of children so this is like a a, a bottom heavy society where there's a high population rate or a high birth rate um whereas Antinatalism leads to the opposite of that. It leads to a top-heavy society um, where population rates plummet. Um, like in uh, Japan being a great example of that, they have a reproduction rate of about 1.2, I think. Um, so they, they have this aging population and they have many more older people than they do the young. Um, this puts a huge burden on the young, massive pressures, um, and there's a sort of incentive to uh, commit suicide because you know your life is... A huge burden now upon the young and things like that. Um, so there's, there's lots of things to worry about with these type of things because these these things are important. You will become old at some point, um, and are you going to be someone that's going to end up in an old people's home? Are you going to be someone that's going to feel like a burden if you're associated with these feelings of nihilism? You know, how is old age going to be something that you can bear? Um, so you know, it, there's lots of connections here between. Um, nihilism and, and modern day issues that we're all having to think about and deal with um, and these things are growing exponentially or the problems are becoming a lot more prevalent quicker than you could imagine um, and I think that's tied to just the fact that everything seems to be moving exponentially these days population growth happened exponentially technological expansion happened exponentially um, you know the interconnectedness of the global society has happened exponentially uh, the you know the growth of our knowledge base is happening exponentially. Everything is occurring and you know exponentially, and and so as well are a lot of the consequences and a lot of the problems and a lot of the negatives or the dark side um, of this exponential growth is growing exponentially with it as well. Um, so I, I'm I'm going to tell you that it is something that you should be worried about. Um, so here's a quote by Arthur Schopenhauer on from his book on uh, studies in pessimism. He says, "If children were brought into the world." By an act of pure reason alone, would the human race continue to exist? Would not a man rather have such a sympathy, uh, so much sympathy with the coming generation as to spare it the burden of existence, or at any rate, not take it upon himself to impose that burden upon it in cold blood? 
Um, so you can see again here these like underlying themes of just severe pessimism, of just not seeing life in a positive, optimistic way at all. Like there's just there's almost no hope. Um, and obviously, if there is no hope, tied to that is this anti-birth movement. Tied to that is an obvious connection to uh, feelings of depression, of meaninglessness, of nihilism, and motivations towards things like suicide. Um, oops, wrong way. And suicide is a grow growing problem. You can check the statistics on this. Uh, so this is World Health Organization. Um, so a number of key facts about suicide. More than 700,000 people die due to suicide every year. Uh, for every suicide, there are many more people who attempt suicide. A prior suicide attempt is the single most important risk factor for suicide in the general population. So if 700,000 people, that, that that's roughly the size of a small city, are killing themselves every year. That's not insignificant. This is a huge problem and it's growing. It's becoming worse. It's becoming more and more of a problem um, to the degree now that in certain countries in Europe, they're talking about assisted suicide. They're talking about making it legal and helping people in the process of doing that. In Japan, suicide is a massive problem. There was a huge controversy with a big popular YouTuber not that long ago. He went to suicide forest. They have a whole forest that makes... Uh, that is specifically for committing suicide. It's even heavily ingrained in their culture. They had the ritualistic suicide as well. Um, but it's a massive problem. And if a, a equivalent, like if you imagine, like what's the biggest football stadium? I don't know. How much does a, the average football stadium hold? Like 100,000 people, give or take? Like imagine seven of them plus every year. And not only that, it, the next point says that for every suicide, there are many more who attempt it. So there are lots of people that try to kill themselves and fail more than there are that actually get through and, and finish it or like and manage to complete what they set out to do. So, you know, this is very telling because if you imagine how scary it is to to end one's life and the, the various ways that people do it. Um, so it says here, in, ingestion of pesticide, hanging, firearms are among the most common methods of suicide globally. Th this things have to be pretty bad. That. It's a very scary thing to do, to ingest a poison, yeah, to shoot yourself, to hang yourself. These They're not pain-free ways of dying. Yeah? They, they can cause a lot of harm, but for, li like for someone to feel as if life is not worth living so much that they're willing to, to do such things, it's, it's very telling to the severity of, of the condition of people, that they feel like this is the only solution, the only way of getting out. And suicide is the fourth leading cause of death among 15 to 29 year olds, um, which is another shocking statistic. 77% of global suicides occur in low and middle income countries. So all of these are very serious issues. And if you don't experience them yourself, like I've said already, you will inevitably know someone who does. And so I say you should care. This is something that you should be concerned with. Uh, so part two, the causes and the effects of nihilism. So this sort of, we'll talk about these both as causes and effects, and it's just sort of rolled into one. Um, but the first one that I talk about in the book is the, the rise of post-truth. Um, so this is generally like, you know, it's the, the general postmodern idea that truth is not attainable um, and just giving up on that idea completely or believing that truth is subjective or like a creative endeavor. You'll hear this quite often, your, your truth, my truth, um, you know, that's their truth. And it's just sort of given away as, 
almost like a fashion accessory. Like you can just pick your truth like you would pick an item of clothing. Um, and this is becoming more and more prevalent um, as time goes on. And it's also connected to the, the lack of trusting of authority figures. Um, you know, we, there's a common theme where people are just getting sick to death of hearing, you know, the experts say this, the experts say that. And you have these competing news outlets and everyone has their experts. Everyone has their authority. Everyone has their scientist that says this or, uh, you know, this um, expert in philosophy or psychology or sociology or this or blah, 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 says this. Bismillah. And people don't know who to trust. And, you, you, you know, you have these things that happen, like conspiracy theories. Um, that you like anyone who believes in certain things that had occurred are made to seem as if they're crazy. And then later on in life, we have the, um, you know, the release of certain documents that were confidential that shows a lot of these things were not, um, crazy at all, that they, these are things that occurred. The governments did do this. They did do that. And th this, it makes it very, very difficult to even see how it is you're going to attain truth. How is it that the average person given how difficult life can be for the average person, how are they on earth going to be able to commit so much time as to be able to get to the bottom of many of these matters? You know, many of them of which may take, you know, hours and hours and hours of study. You may need to read many books, check many different references, look at data, maybe even have a certain education to be able to even understand the data that you're being given. Um, and so like you can see why the average person may give up on the idea of being able to attain truth at all. Um, there's just too much going on. Uh, you take the, the, you know, this whole Brexit thing. And I, I don't have, a, you know, a piece on either side. I, I couldn't care less whether we stayed or went because I just didn't know enough. And I tried looking into it. I tried to understand it, but it, it just struck me as very weird. It's like, why am I being asked to make this decision? Who am I? I was, I was a young lad and... Like, I, I, you know, this seemed like a, a, ve a very complex and important problem. And I'm being asked, along with everyone around me, to make this huge decision. It's like, surely some actual experts in economy and this and that would be better suited to make this. Why is it being put on me? And so I tried my best to understand the problem. So it's just too much information. I didn't have enough time. You know, I just got married. I just had a child. I was in university. I had all of my other problems and friendships I'm trying to maintain and responsibilities towards my my mother, my brothers, my friends, my community. Like there, there's all these other things going on in my life. And now I'm, I've somehow got to figure out whether or not the UK should stay in the EU. It just seemed absurd. But many people were just picking their truth and they were being driven by rhetoric and by uh, scare tactics and you know sound bites and small things that were being shared on social media, um, and that you know for anyone who is reflective enough to look at the situation, to see what it is that they've been given, how on earth are they supposed to be able to overcome that? If you're being genuine with yourself, and so people just give up on the idea of like attaining the proper truth, or they'll just go into this subjective creative mode where they just decide what their truth is. Um, regardless of what the facts are and regardless of whether or not they're capable of achieving it or attaining it. Um, and it, it's just, it, it it's a huge problem. And it leads to what I would refer to as like a, a societal exhaustion. Um, it's just this collective mental fatigue because there's just too many opinions and too much information. And like just simply looking at it, like if you go into a library just to get a sense of 
like how much information there might be. Um, and like any local library isn't even necessarily going to be exhaustive of the amount of information that is actually available. It's going to be like a snippet, you know, like a small cup out of the ocean, so to speak. Um, but if you were to just go into any general library to look about and ask yourself how long it would take you to read every book in there, to absorb all the information and to process it and to connect the dots between everything, you, you quite quickly recognize there's not enough time in one life. Even if you didn't do anything else with your time, but read these books and try to understand them, even if you didn't have to sleep, and even if you didn't have to work and pay your bills and look after your family and your friends and take the dog for a walk or do whatever else, even if you didn't have to do all of that, there still wouldn't be enough time to go through all of this information and to process it. And it, it's, I think it, it's not an unnatural reaction to just see all of this and for the brain to just shut down and go, what's the point? I'm not even going to bother. And it's it's very common. Um, and it, it's just linked to this, you know, being overwhelmed by overabundance. Uh, the, the paradox of overchoice uh, leads to people not wanting to make choices at all. Um, like me, for example, with the whole Brexit thing, there's like there's these two choices and there's so much information on both sides. I was like, I can't, I'm not going to make a choice. Um, there's studies as well that showed that um, there was these people that were given every option for their pension in within, within their working contract. And what they found is that when they gave the, the employees every single available option, that they just didn't engage with it at all. They didn't pick a pension. However, when they reduced the options to three or four, uh, of what the employees uh, the employers considered to be the best options, then there was an increase in engagement. Uh, and so it's funny because there is this sort of assumption that's often put forward that freedom, more choice is better. Yeah? And you, like, you see this expressed absolutely everywhere these days. You go into any Starbucks, it's like there's, you, know, you can have your coffee 50 million different ways. You, what kind of bread do you want? If you go into the Asda, there's like 20 different kinds of loaves of bread. It's, it's just, it, it's become... Crazy! It's become absurd the amount of options that have become available to people, um, and th this obviously expresses itself in terms of um, like consumerism and buying products. But it also happens in terms of information, in terms of religion, and it's uh, this is one of the common objections that atheists make. You hear it pushed forward by new atheists like, like Richard Dawkins, um, where they'll say, you know, there are too many religions. Which religion? Which god? There's ten thousand. There's ten million of them. Um, I'll come to this, like a, a rebuttal of this later on in part three. Um, but it's just, obviously at this point, I'm just telling you about the what the causes, the effects of nihilism. Um, and there's just this overabundance of access to all of these different religions, all of these different belief systems that people have across the world leads people to start to question their own. It's like, what are the chances that I am on the right religion? What are the chances? Um, what was mentioned at the beginning, I'm a, the manager of the Lighthouse Project. And one of the major things we do is help people with their doubts. And I get a lot of people that are born into Muslim families that haven't really gone through the process of asking why they're religious using the service because now they're panicking. They're like, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I had the sweetness of a man. Um, it was quite easy for me to believe. But now I've gotten older and I'm watching YouTube and I'm watching all of these TV programs and these um, these films and these movies and these debates and these documentaries. Like it, it, I've become overwhelmed. Like, what are the chances? How do I know all these other religions are false? How do I know that Islam is true? Um, and then being overwhelmed 
by an overabundance of information and an overabundance of choices. Um, there's also this underlying problem as well, um, of reasoning being easy uh, for some people. So Aristotle um, he was popular for putting forward this idea that the human being is the quote unquote the rational animal. Um, and so th there's this strange combination of people that just sort of give up um, on truth or, and then they'll make up their own sort of assumptions. Uh, and th there seems to be some sort of like cognitive dissonance as well with this idea that they just are rational by default. And so many people will look at pop arguments against religion um, and see it as reasonable. So like, for example, we mentioned this, oh, but there's too many religions, which God, I'm just an atheist in one more God than you, that kind of trope. People see that and they, they think that it's rational. They, and it, it's often the case when people come, they'll use the service and they'll say, oh, Islam is irrational. It's like, all right, so what makes something rational? What, 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 tell me about reasoning. Tell me about logic. What's the difference between a deductive, an inductive and an abductive argument? How do you identify what a fallacy is? What's the difference between a formal and informal one? Um, you know, like, how do you determine whether or not an argument is valid? How do you know whether or not an argument is sound? What is what is it for an argument? Like, you ask basic questions on reasoning. Yeah, if anyone takes, a, like, just an introductory lesson into logic and reason, you learn these things. But the average person, you ask them about these things, they won't know the answers to them. And the reason for that is that the human being is not born rational in the same way that we're not born strong. Yeah, we're born weak and we're born stupid. The job of the parent is to just to stop kids from killing themselves most of the time. They're just running around trying to stick plugs in, uh, forks in plug sockets or, you know, get into fights with dangerous animals or, you know, they're, they're running into the road and then crying as if you're an oppressor because you're trying to save them from getting run over by a car. Like children are not born rational they're born crazy and and weak and in the same way if you want to become strong you have to put in the energy the effort the work uh it's the same case with reasoning that if you want to become a rational person that it requires effort and energy you have to learn to do this you have to understand the mechanism behind reasoning um many people don't do that and so they they get lost and they get overwhelmed buy all of this information because they, they have this strange underlying assumption that they've got to go through every single thing, for example. Like, in order for me to be justified in becoming any particular religion, I have to check every religion and cross every single one of them off. Um, and, if you know, if you've engaged in rational thinking at all, you would know that you wouldn't have to do that. You can group things up. You can say, okay, I, I can put all of this, I can categorize these things. And if I can write off a category... I don't need to worry about these things. So, but you know, if you've not had training in rational thought and critical thinking and, and these type of things, it, it's very easy to become quite confused in in simple things. And and I think this is also a big part of the problem as to how people become confused or how people become um, nihilistic or how people are so easily inclined to sort of give up on the ability to attain truth uh, because the, there's this weird and it it sounds sort of problematic or even counterintuitive or how how does that match up with people thinking that they're rational um with the idea of giving up on the notion of truth and things like that it, it's again it's not really clear why people fall into both of these camps um but it, it it is evident that they do where like the people when they're like if you're talking to people that give up on 
things that seem intuitive to everyone. Um, like the notion of, you know, this this recent documentary, what is a woman? Yeah. Like the people that are being discussed, they're not necessarily irrational people for the most part. Like you've got some um, university professors and they're probably in their own right quite intelligent in some way or another. You know, they've they've got an education, they've managed to get degrees and this, that and the other. But with certain things that that it just seems crazy and because there's this notion of just allowing feelings to in certain circumstances to become more important than the rational or than uh what makes sense and it just becomes a fallback on what was mentioned before about um you know truth being a subjective or a creative endeavor because it's just too much there's just so much going on you know one, one thing i uh, i've come to realize is that a lot of uh, I, I would say that everyone has definitely has the potential to reason um, and that most people exercise reason properly or yeah. at least put a serious attempt at exercising it properly when it comes to things that they genuinely care about and sincerely care about. So when it comes to someone trying to choose the latest phone to buy or the newest car to buy um, or some stock that they want to invest in, I'm not saying that they're the, 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 the method that they're going to follow in determining uh, what decision to make is flawless, but you would see that they would a lot of people would put a genuine attempt into you know comparing factual uh, the, the, you know fa factual attributes between option A and option B, right? Because the guy really cares about buying the best phone at the most reasonable price. Same thing with the car and whatnot. Um, even at the workplace, just dealing with my peers and colleagues at work, I could see that a lot of people. Uh, spot fallacies, spot fallacies. When you, if you want to make an argument for uh, an investment or for uh, introducing a new corporate policy, you'll see people thinking at 100%, right? No, that, that could be to that. No, that doesn't follow from that. No, put your emotions to the side. That's not for the benefit of the corporation. However, once you start talking about religion, you start talking about the broader purpose in life, all that rational thinking just seems to go away, Right. And so sometimes there is a selective um, exercise of reason uh, 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 and not yeah, that, that the person is totally unreasonable. And when you when we reflect on several passages in the Quran, uh, you know, the, the Quran is speaking to us uh, with the presumption that we are capable of of exercising reason. Why? Why are you not exercising your reason properly? And when people in hell will be asked why, you know, they they landed up in hell. Right, they would say that uh, you know wish we did not we did not use our reason, right? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, not all of us are are formally trained, right? And obviously, only those who are formally trained will be able to distinguish between deductive and inductive and all that stuff. But people who are genuinely care about a certain thing will intuitively spot fallacies, right? Um, but it's it, 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 but it seems to me that when it comes to a lot of these issues, broader issues, purpose of life and whatnot, people just you know, don't care about those things as much as they do about material uh, decision. -making. So, um, yeah, I, I guess because you, you are right to a certain degree, because there are a lot of people that do that. Like, I, I know a lot of people that would, you know, put two products side by side and make sure they're picking the best one. Um, but I also know a lot of people that don't. And I think there's so many people in the world today that there's probably large quantities of people that fall into both camps. There are a lot of people that are just taken by marketing 
that they 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 just buy Apple products, for example, because they just like the marketing, not necessarily because it's the best product. Yeah, it's the power of brand, right? Yeah, like, yeah, the brand, power of brand. They're not just thinking about the functional features of the attribute, but yeah. at the same time, um, you know, the power of the brand. You know, they they might be accustomed to associating features with this brand by default. And they're also thinking about other benefits. You know, I want to be seen purchasing this brand and that will get me some social clout or social status. And so it yeah. may not be totally um, uh, irrational, but I, I do get your point of view. Yeah. And, and it also links as well to the, this, you know, the problem that I mentioned about there being just too much information. Like I, I I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm like the most rational person in the world, um, but I've had training in it. Like I got great scores in my logic and reason essays in um exam sorry in university uh one of the highest in my class and even then like i find it sometimes very overwhelming or difficult to deal with certain things so you mentioned buying a car like when it comes to buying a car i just didn't i don't have the time to go through like i i got an audi in the end and the the major thing that made me buy it was just because it was 600 quid like it was a cheap like i got a deal and whether or not it was the best option, whether or not it's the best car, whether or not, like, I don't know. I don't know. And I I, I could try and look into it, but I don't have the time. I, and I don't, I, you know, I just had to take a sort of leap of faith with that particular product. I take leaps of faith with many things. And I think most people do. Because again, like, it, it's about time. Like, who has the time to sit down and compare every product? Like, when you pick a phone, maybe you might pick one or two and then compare the two options that you've picked. But is that the only options available? No, there's like 50 million phones out there now, 50 million different brands. And so even then there's a sense of like a leap of faith or you know, not necessarily a rational decision in terms of how you narrow it down to the particular choices you want to make. And then even then you might do an arbitrary comparison you're not necessarily looking at the components and saying, ah, you know, but this brand used this particular metal and this one used this metal and this one is a better superconductor or whatever. Like, it doesn't ever go that deep. Like, it's like, oh, you know, this one has a better camera. Oh, this one has expandable memory. Oh, like, and the, the, there's these other points that maybe dominate the front, but even then it's like, that could be opened up at an infinitum. And it's an overwhelming choice. Um, and so... Although people might have this sort of rudimentary ability to reason, I think when you expand the sphere of things that need to be observed and processed, the the ability to reason becomes more and more and more difficult. Um, and for anyone who takes like a one on one course in like logic and reason, if you look at truth tables, truth tables are an amazing example of how quickly things get complex. When you're trying to check the validity of an argument. If there's only like two things to take into consideration and the truthfulness of the statement as a whole, um, it's relatively easy because the combination, like if A, if A, then B, um, you know, A has two possibilities, either it's true or it's false. And B has two possibilities, either true or false. And so when you only have to take these two things into consideration or these two elements in an argument, um, there's only four possible outcomes or four possible combinations. Either both are true, either one is true and the other is false or vice versa, or both of them are false. However, when you introduce a third element, it doubles. And now you've got eight combinations of truth value possible. And if you add a fourth, it doubles again. And a fifth, it doubles again. And so the growth is exponential because every time you add a new element 
you've exponentially increased the different combinations of possible truth values. Um, and therefore, it becomes exponentially more difficult to evaluate whether or not it's valid. Because if, if checking its validity relies on being able to work out these truth tables properly, if you're going to do like a really good job at it, um, the more elements you have in an argument or the more things you've got to take into consideration, the more difficult the job of checking the validity of any particular thing becomes. And then on top of that, if not like finding out whether an argument is sound is not just about validity, but it's also about the truthfulness of the statements. And as you exponentially increase the amount of statements that are included in any particular argumentation, then you've got an even bigger job. And like certain true statements might have contained within them a number of assumptions that you've got to go and check. And the job just becomes huge. And like it eventually gets to a point where people just get bored. They give up. They don't really want to go or dig any deeper. And inevitably, they end up having to take a leap of faith. Um, no, it's sort of bringing it back now to the um, to the science. So you've got all of these things that occur. So you've got the, like you know the the overwhelming uh, feeling of too much information. You know, overwhelmed by overabundance, societal exhaustion, the rise of post truth and postmodernism. Um, a difficulty surrounding reasoning and you know as the that information increases how that makes your ability to like observe what's going on and find the truth more and more difficult um gives rise to nihilism not as a choice in the person people are not necessarily reasoning their way into nihilism rather it's experienced like an illness they just find themselves in this sort of nihilistic conundrum um, as a reaction to the circumstances that they're in, rather than it being, like I say, like a rational choice. It's just the conditions are such, and this increases the likeness that when the average person is exposed to this, that they could fall into the feelings of nihilism. Now, there's a an author, um, I forgot to put the name of the author in here, uh, but if you read the book, when I get to this point, I mentioned the author and who he is. Um, but it, it, he mentions four major threats to meaning. Number one is the spirit of criticism and skepticism that has become prevalent in places like the West. Um, number two, depersonalization and fragmentation due to industrialization and alienation. Uh, number three, overabundance of things and information, which we've gone over. And number four, rapid rates of change, which leads to feelings of impermanence and a lack of security. So the spirit of criticism and skepticism, it's sort of given to people in secular societies, almost like it's um, it's something you've got to live in. Like you've got to be consistently a critic of everything. You've got to be skeptical of whatever anyone tells you. Um, and it, it's treated as like a permanent state of being rather than a tool that comes in handy from time to time. Um, and when you're dealing with atheists or disbelievers in general, when you're talking about religion, they remain permanently skeptical. And it's like, you've got to justify every layer of thing. But then when they move out of the sphere of a discussion about um, religion, they become less skeptical. Like they, they, they lower the bar, they lower the requirements of what they need to be convinced of any particular thing. Um, whereas religion has a completely different standard that it's held to. Um, and this spirit of criticism and the spirit of skepticism, when it comes to things that give life meaning, make it harder for people to attain meaning because they're constantly being told to be skeptical of it 
um, depersonalization, fragmentation due to industrialization and alienation. So the more you've got this in industrialized society, if you look at the modern West, alienation, what do we mean by that? Well, people just don't even know who their neighbors are anymore. Families don't even know who they are. You have the dual income families, mum and dad both work all day and they go out. They've offloaded parenthood um, into this sort of industrialized factory line setting schooling system where strangers are made to raise their children. Um, and the, even the people that are doing the raising are just given sets of children one after the other for, in one hour chunks in this flood throughout a day. And it's just you know, like on a conveyor belt one after the other. And it, it's very hard for people to maintain connections with anyone anymore because of the way that all of this has been set up because of this sort of industrialization that's taken place um, to the degree where like people might come home from work, mom and dad. And they're now not only have they got the full-time job at work, but now when they get home, there's a full-time job waiting for both of them at home. That is caring for the family and looking after the house. And there's going to be discussions and discuss uh, debates about whose job it is to do what. Who's, whose turn is it to do the pots? Whose turn is it to do the washing? Whose turn is it to put the kids to bed? Whose turn is it to do this? And now you've got to have this sort of debate with your significant other about splitting the other full-time job, which is at home. And, you know, what's how much is everyone going to do? But everyone already feels overwhelmed by everything that they've done at work. When they want to come home, they just want to zone out. And, um, and we're going to go into it in a second as well. There's this sort of techno escape where people just fall into their mobile devices or into their TV, or into their laptops, into YouTube, into Netflix, into this, into that, into computer games, um, in order to just escape all of the issues that are happening happening in the world around them. Um, you know, in order to sort of get away from the problems that life has given them. Um, and but this this as well as giving them an option to escape alienates them and the people around them. To the degree that parents don't even really know who their kids are anymore. Kids don't even really know who their parents are. There's, like the the amount of families that sit down and have dinner together has significantly decreased. Children generally will just spend most of their time in their room, or they'll go out with friends, or they'll be stuck to computer games. They're not re people are not really engaging as families anymore. Um, and on top of that, you've got this overabundance of things of information. Um, which gives rise to the problems we've already spoken about, and then the rapid rates of change, impermanence, and a lack of security. Back in the day, it wasn't that difficult to prepare children for the world because you knew what world they were going to be living in. The world you were raised in wasn't that much different from the world your grandparents were raised in or their grandparents. The rate of change, historically, was very slow. There wasn't this exponential increase that you see in the present day. To the degree that now life changes in just rapidly in one person's life. Me as a kid, I lived in a completely different world to the, the world that my daughter lives in. My computer game, I was raised on the Super Nintendo, on Sega Mega Drive. You know, the, the your platform games, your character moved in one direction. Um, you jumped and you span around. And like that was it. <laughs> like there, there was like not many options. Did you play uh, Donkey Kong or? Oh yeah, yeah, Donkey yeah. Kong. Yeah, you could maybe throw. We're old, man. We're old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm not like relatively sweet. I'm not even that old. I'm like 35. Obviously, the younger probably gonna disagree. Or uh, 34. Okay, boomer. <laughs> I'm that old. I can't even remember how old I am. 
But the you know, like I'm I'm relatively speaking, I'm I'm quite young. Thirty-four years is in the grand scheme of things, you know, people are living to a hundred and odd these days. Like there's there's people that can live a long time. And inshallah, Allah grants us all a long life. But if I was to that that's like a third of my life, if I'm granted a hundred years, yeah, has has gone through. And in that time, just computer games alone have developed from the Super Nintendo, Sega Mega Drive, to the PlayStation 1 and the Xbox, to the PlayStation 2, 3, 4, 5, to the super computers. You know, it's gone from Sonic the Hedgehog to Skyrim, to EVE Online, to, you know, these these universe simulators. And they've gone from flat two-dimensional platformers to multi-dimensional, crazy graphic games where sometimes you can barely tell the difference between that and real life. There's some games now if you go on the internet. like And on top of that, you've got the implementation of AI, which is just going to make these games so much weirder. You know, chat GPT? GP, is it GP or GP? GPT. GPT. You know, having these kind of things implemented into AI discussions where, like, I didn't even really have a choice too much of what my character said when I was playing as a, a youth. It was just like this dialogue that was forced upon you. Mario says this. Bowser says that. Like, there was no, like, if this, then that. There was no conditionals. There was no choices. Um, You went from that to, like, Fallout and Skyrim, where you had multiple choices and you picked, and that might develop it slightly differently. So, like, the implementation now where they're trying to put unique dialogue, where AI will generate a dialogue depending on what you say to it. And you could say whatever you want. And then it'll react. It'll have like this preset story and everyone will engage with the game in a completely unique way. Things are getting crazy in one lifetime. How am I now supposed to prepare my daughter when I've been prepared for a world that no longer exists? I don't even know what's going on now. You know, you know the um, there's a, there's a meme that was popularized where it's like old people are having to try to learn how to code because they've lost their jobs. Like, you know, the, the AI and computer technological advancements have just come in and just taken away huge areas of the workforce from people and replaced it with automated machines and artificial intelligence. And they're old and they don't really have, like, you know, and, they're, they're, and you've got these, like, the, the youth will just say, oh, well, you just got to go with the times, learn how to code, pick a new job. But if you've spent, 20, 30, 40 years dedicated to a particular thing. It's very hard for that to just become obsolete overnight. And then to transition from that into something completely new, especially when you're old. Like the world is changing rapidly. And this gives rise to a sense of impermanence. Like, what is the point? Like, how many people have spent their life trying to figure out how to code? Only for artificial intelligence to come along and just talk, sweep that away from under their feet. Like, how much money did they spend on degrees? How much time have they, like, and even that, like, and it's funny because that meme, learn to code, yeah, is there's an irony in that now because if they did take that advice, artificial intelligence is going to be something that takes that away as well because things are just moving so quickly. And so because... You can't even be sure what world you're going to live in by the end of your life. How are you supposed to prepare your children for that? Yeah, whereas you look at back in the day, if you were born in a blacksmith's family, all right, son, you're going to be a blacksmith. Like, this, like there was not much, 
argument, there wasn't much of a, you know, mental process that had to go in to figuring out who you were going to be, you know, how you were going to grow, what kind of person you were going to be when you get older. Um, but yeah, so the point of this is that the, like all four of these things in particular are major threats to meaning. And what you'll notice is that all four of them are heavily prevalent in Western society. They're heavily present prevalent in modern industrial westernized places. Um, and it, it's only increasing. We're getting more overabundance of things, of information, of leisure items. We seem to be becoming more alienated from one another as technology is sort of separating us. And, uh, you know, our focus is like we're going into these online digital realms rather than having real life person to person interactions. Um, you know, the, the, the rate of change is happening so crazily now that I, I can't be sure what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in 10 years time. Like, you know, and all of this are massive threats to meaning, huge problems for people. Um, and we talk about truth and techno hypnosis. So we mentioned it briefly a moment ago, but this idea that um, so advances advances in technology are just implemented really quickly you know, without really thinking too much, without questioning whether or not it adds, it is actually going to be beneficial. And we, we we've sort of become this um, like a guinea pig society where we, all of these things are just being tested on us. And we don't really know what the long-term consequences of these things are going to be. We're just sort of hoping for the best. We've made a huge leap of faith that somehow organizing societies the way that we have done over the past century is somehow going to be ultimately beneficial. There's this idea of, and whenever people talk about history, they sort of, they put, they will show it you in the same way that they sort of show you a graph, like, you know, yeah, we've got, things are getting better and better and better and better and better. And it's only really spoke about as if like the position we're in now is somehow only ultimately better than it was in the past because we have, we're looking at it from a certain perspective. We're looking at it in terms of the quality of living. Like, yes, there are amazing things around us and we are living lives that, you know, kings 200 years ago could only imagine uh, access to like I, I live in Bolton, in north of England. I, I, our drinking water, the, the, the tap water, we can drink straight from the tap. Like I don't have to worry about getting cholera. I don't have to like I don't have to boil it. I don't have to necessarily even put it through a filter. Like I can quite easily just drink my tap water and just go about my day. Like it's fresh, it's clean, it's like if I want it warm, I press another tap and it comes out hot. Like if I want to, you know, I've got these light switches. When it gets to the winter, it gets really cold here. And, you know, the, the heating is on a dial. So when it recognizes it's gone below a certain temperature, it kicks in. Like there's there's amazing things around me. Um, And there's definitely ways in which, obviously, I enjoy life much more because of these things. But there's other things we're not taking into consideration, like how these things may make me weaker in certain senses. And how, if you think of it, intergenerationally and in the grand scheme of things how that might cause huge problems for society if for whatever reason these things were to be taken away would me and my children be as suited to dealing with the problems that we would have to face um in in light of this you know you've got that saying uh how's it go the strong men give rise to good times uh no hard times give rise to strong men strong men give rise to good times 
Good times give rise to weak men. Weak men give rise to hard times. And the, it goes in the cycle. And you can kind of see which stage we're in now. Uh, we're, we're definitely in the stage of good times creating weak men. And the, and this weakening, um, it, and it's not just with humans, by the way. There was a really good documentary I was watching about the animal kingdom. And it, like the same thing happens with lions. There was these, uh, this ostracized uh, pride of lions that was sort of left outside of the major pride. They were sort of, you know, kicked out and they had to defend themselves. And the, the major pride had abundance. And so the cubs in this pride never went without. They constantly had food. They didn't have to fight for it. There was so much they could become plump and fat. And the ostracized pride, the little smaller group of tig- uh, lions, sorry, um, the cubs, they had to fight to get food. Some of them died, but the ones that survived, they grew strong. They grew capable because of the difficulties that they went through. And then in the end, the 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 cubs that came from the um, the ostracized group were better suited to being alpha males or the leader of the pride than the ones that came from the ones that were well off, well to do. And so it's easy for them to come in and take over and to then become the leader of this larger group because difficulty, conditions that being hard better prepare you for life, for and. So, and we're we're not really asking these questions when it comes to implementing all of this technology. When we're when it comes to implementing, we're we're thinking about leisure. We're thinking about how this is going to give me increased time to chill, to relax, to go on holiday, to enjoy life, and not so much about like the long term consequences of all of these things. Um, and you just have this like sort of self hypnosis. Where we we just we go into these devices, we use these phones, we find ourselves on the internet, we find ourselves watching three hour long YouTube videos every day. This being one of them, like and and rather than engaging with the world around us, and rather than engaging with the people in our lives, we're we're stuck in this, and it, it, that can have huge problems in the long run. And we're not really thinking about it, um, and it is driven by a desire for convenience and an increase in leisure opportunity. Um, and also, so I mentioned, I was trying to remember why I put that first one, false ideas, um, the false idea that truths are always beneficial. So the thing is with this, the implementation of um, the advancement of technology, it, it is underp- underpinned by the seeking of truths. That is that like, you know, it, it, how does the universe work? If I put this here, is it true that this will do this? Is it true that that'll do that? Um, and you know, like if a, a new mobile phone or AI, they're underlying this new technology or these new advancements is a list of facts, list of information that is true, that if you do this, you'll get this outcome. And we're just sort of collecting truths as if all truths are necessarily good. But it's not necessarily the case at all. There could be truths that are not beneficial. There could be truths that are detrimental to society, there could be truths that ultimately lead to our demise or lead to our collapse or lead to great suffering. There could be truths that are are ugly truths that people don't want to hear. And I think what we're looking at at the moment is an abundance of problems and 
you know, and it's it's being given rise to by this sort of first for truth, um, without again thinking too much about the the, the long term consequences. Um, so, like I say, it's linked to self hypnosis, escaping reality, being technology, using platforms like YouTube, Netflix, etc. Um, and you've got this opportunity to become the main character, experience an adventure. So you think of games like Skyrim. Yeah, you become the Dragonborn. You are the main character in this game. You get to experience that. In real life, you don't necessarily have that. You're just the spy stander. You work for this multi-millionaire company, um, you know, as a technician or as customer service advisor. And you're just a cog in this bigger picture. You're watching main characters on YouTube. You're watching the likes of all of these celebrities living the main character hero arc lifestyle. When you go to the movie, you're 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 seeing this happen elsewhere, but you don't necessarily really get to experience it that yourself. If you're caught in a grind, you've got bills to pay, gas, electric, rent, all of these things are increasing exponentially, but your wages aren't increasing as much. And it's like you're you're living on the edge of your income constantly. Well, and you feel stuck. And this is a common problem for many people. And so an opportunity to become an adventurer in some grand universe with dragons and dinosaurs and monsters and you know like evil characters that really don't like you that want to defeat you and that you get to battle in this epic fight like there's there's a there is an appeal to that for many people that are suffering from nihilism that have this experience of meaninglessness in their life they they flee to these things because they get a brief momentarily a momentary sense of meaning and for people, I don't, so did you grow up playing games as well much, or like do you still play games just out of interest? Uh, game consoles, no, I st- I stopped a while stopped. ago, but but yeah, I grew up with the Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo, PlayStation One, the first, but yeah. I never bought a PlayStation Two or Three or anything after that. <laughs> so just out of interest, out of it pretty early. But yeah, you know, we played Counter Strike, you know, back in our oh yeah, Counter Strike, sick game, yeah, 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 but. But yeah, I mean, I, I I think the last time I played a game console was Xbox around a decade ago for like a month. And then I said, wow, this is really wasting my time. And I just, right, there we go. That's just the key. Of it. <laughs> so this is one of the big problems with games. Yeah. When, when, when I played as a kid, I could play for days. Like I, I would, I would play for days. I'd get sucked into a game, like, especially when I, I got my first PC. There were certain games that were sick, like City Builders, or you know, like Age of Empires. Uh, what other ones? Uh, Total War, like where you like you're conquering the world. Yeah, I I could just play these games for days and days and days and days and not feel guilty about it. I didn't feel like I was wasting my time. I was a dependent. I was young. Didn't have to worry about bills. Didn't have to worry about the grand scheme of things. Mum would carry. My mum was sorting all these things out. All I had to worry about was just making sure I had food every now and then and then getting sleep when I was tired. So I, I could quite happily play these games for a long time. And then I'd get bored, but I wouldn't feel guilty. I'd just get bored, turn it off, and then I'd go out, meet my mates and go and play. But then as I got older and got older and got older, what happened is I got this severe sense of nostalgia for how games used to be or how my experience, at least, of games used to be. And I could no longer play games the same way that I could do when I was younger. And there was a heavy sense of meaninglessness in them. It's like, you know, I'd, I'd play Skyrim and I'd smash it. 
and I'd have this brief sense of like enjoyment, but then eventually it's like, what am I doing? Like, yeah, I'm this sick guy, level hundred blacksmith in this game, and I can make the best armor, and you know, I'm a level hundred archer, and I'm a level, I've got a level hundred sneak, and I've done all of this. But what does that really translate into? Does that translate into any real world success? No, it doesn't. I feel like I've wasted my time. And it, it becomes difficult to not just experience nihilism when playing these games because you recognize the fruitlessness of them, that you're not really doing anything. You're not really achieving anything. Yeah, you've conquered the universe in this game, but you turn the console off or it just becomes a save file. Like it's not, it's it's like it's not even that important. Maybe you'll stop even talking about it. And there's a there's a sense that this even translates into real life as well because people are like, okay, I'm a manager at Pizza Hut, or you know, I'm I've worked my way up the ladder of this particular mobile phone company, or you know, oh yeah, I've collected all of these things, these gadgets. I've got all of these cars. I've got even if you become like a millionaire, the question in the end is is What's the point? What's the point? Why have I got all these things? If I just turn to the dust in the end, yeah. If 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 the prevalent belief with you and the people around you is just atheism, yeah. That there is when you die, you know, the YOLO mentality. What next? What's the point? Why have I collected all of these things? And there's this sort of notion that once you have it, once you've achieved it, you know, there's a, there's, um, there's a hadith that Adam is greedy. Yeah, he wants a mountain of gold. But when he gets it, he's not satisfied. He wants another. Yeah, he always wants another. It's the law of diminishing returns. Everything is constantly... Uh, like you're, ne you're never satisfied. You always want more. Um, and life becomes difficult to bear. It becomes nihilistic in the same way that computer games can become especially if it's underpinned by these ideas of atheism, that when you die, you just turn to dust. You know, like the Quraysh would say, so the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, um, you know, like that you, you, when you die, you just, you're just gone. That's it. That's the end of it. There's nothing else after that. Um, and as I, as I say here in this slide, so be, uh, be children at play as adults, facilitated by an increase in leisure time. So this idea of like the children at play, you know, like when you watch children playing, the seriousness with which they play. Yeah. You can remember what that's like as a kid. And you can remember the the carefreeness that you could play these games and how your experience of that could be filled with joy. It could be exciting. It could be like this a real adventure, just simply being on in your back garden. I remember me and my, my best friend, we read this book in on science and it showed us a picture of the earth. And we got a shovel and we thought the core was made of gold because it was made yellow in the book. So we got a shovel and we went into my mum's back garden and we started digging a hole trying to get the gold in the center of the earth. And we that, that was an amazing experience for us. We thought we were digging to the center of the earth. We didn't even get two meters. Yeah, we didn't get that far in the end. But we had this severe sense of meaning and this severe sense of purpose and this tiny little task. But then it gets to a point when you, you age, when you cross the boundary of childhood into adulthood. Yeah, you, you hit puberty or whatever it is, whatever that boundary is, you cross it, you lose that naivety you lose that innocence and you can no longer play games like you could in your childhood not in the same way you can't you, you like there's there's always a sense of 
fruitless. Like you, you can see now. You see what you're doing isn't the same as what it was when you were a child. And when you're watching children at play, and when I watch my daughter play, or when I watch my cousins play, or whatever, like there is a sense of nostalgia there. Like I yearn for what they have, but I know I can't get it because once you see, you can't unsee. Once you know, you can't not know. You can't forget. You've lost your innocence now. You were, you're an adult playing games. And, you know, th th this, you're trying to sort of escape what you're experiencing in life. You're trying to escape this nihilism um, and you're jumping into these games. You're trying to find yourself lost in YouTube wormholes or in binging Netflix series because you, you want to try to forget the dread of life, of the impending doom, of how fast the days are going. Before I know it, I'm 30. How's that gone? How's it? I've not even got used to being 20 yet. And I'm halfway through 30. Well, how did that happen? Like with my I, my sense of adults when I was a youth was completely different to how I thought being an adult was. Like I'd look at 30 year olds and think they look this certain way. I don't feel how I thought they would, how, how I thought I would do at the age of 30. Yeah, time has just barreled by so quickly that I've got this man body. But my head hasn't been able to keep up with it because things are just moving so quickly. Things are just so strange. Um, and, you know, th this has impacts on things like society, obligation and duty. You know, if, if you're escaping the world, if you're escaping reality into these other things, into technology, into uh, whatever it is you escape into, it necessarily means you're escaping the people in it. Yeah? If you're getting lost in your phone, if you're talking to everyone, on the internet from all over the planet. Yes, you're interconnected. MashaAllah, you're you you global man. Um, but your neighbors don't know who you are. Your family don't know who you are. You you've got this loss of like the lack of duty in the family. And we're going to talk about this later on, but how you know how people are just so willing to just throw their parents into an old people's home and maybe visit them once a month. Like, you know, the, the dissolving of clear roles within the community, within families the offloading of responsibilities to others where you you know you have these tragedies that will happen you know you find out your neighbors died and they've been dead in their house for 3 months what's the first thing people complain about on the news the government should have done something about this what what's a house of men down in london got to do with what's going on on your street why are you offloading this responsibility onto you know a bunch of people you already know don't give a crap about you why is it their responsibility? Why is it not the responsibility of the neighbors to know whether or not someone in their street has died three months ago? How, like th there's this dissolution it's the, of clear responsibility of people. Like there's no, you know, it's not even considered a duty to know your neighbor's name. You can move into a flat or a house and not, people won't bat an eyelid if they're like, Who, who's that? I don't know. He's a bit weird. Like, I don't know who the neighbor is. I don't even know what, like, it's a bit dodgy, isn't it? Like, th th there's this sense of mystery about people that live meters away from you. Yeah, this isn't, historically, this isn't how things were. Even when I was a kid, like, everyone knew everyone on the street. That wasn't that long ago. It was a few decades ago. It was quite common. Like, if you wanted to knock on for your mate, if you wanted to play with your mate, you had to knock on their house. And, or you'd say, oh, meet me here at this time. And you had to make sure you were there. And, like, th there was there was an engagement with the community. Like you knew who the people were. It'd be surprising if kids today have friends with children on their street. 
if most of their friendships are probably going to be connections via online games when they've been playing Counter Strike or Call of Duty or whatever, you know, the, the, the whoever sent them a friend invite via the internet. Um, you have this obsession with individual desires and freedoms and liberty. Me, YOLO, my life, rather than on a communal sense of my duty towards my parents, what you know, the, the sense of sacrifice involved in giving your life for others, the people around you. Um, and technology is just further isolation, you know, furthering this isolation. Cars, if you think about cars as well, horses were very open things. Like there was no like thing over your head. Like if you were out on a horse, you were still in the world. Like people could still engage with you. People are in these little metal bubbles where you can talk and you can speak. Like, and there's this sense of, like, it's, it's bizarre. I've seen it even in like really timid people where they become hyper-aggressive once they get in the car. Like they feel safe. They feel like they're in their own their own world, their own environment. And they become different. They, they become isolated. And you just, these motorways, these highways of people in boxes, box after box after box after box, no one engaging with each other. People just lost in YouTube videos or whatever. There's there's this strange thing that's happening. Even like families, of you, you go into a house and kids will just be sat there in headphones. They might not even say hello. It's a huge problem where I've gone into like my friends' houses and the kids just don't engage with you. And you like you've got to really try like hey, oh yeah. And you've got to wave your hands in front of them so they'll like acknowledge your existence. And even then they might still ignore you. And um, you know, and this like they're pushing this sense of YOLO. If you only have one life, why waste your time on things that have a negative impact on you? Like charity, for example, which again we'll go into. Like, why give charity? What's the point? And I'll show you as, as this slide goes on, but it's it's shown that you're much less likely to give charity as an atheist, as a disbeliever. And especially if you're a nihilist, like if things don't really have any greater purpose or greater meaning, why waste your funds? If you really want, you know, maybe you might fall into hedonism as a form of escapism or whatever it is, but like if you feel like life is meaningless, why give your money to people? Why sacrifice your time, your energies and your efforts for others? If it means that your quality of life is going to be diminished because of it, what's the point in this? If you only have one life, why waste your time on things that have a negative impact on you with regards to what you value the most? And you know these issues are related to freedom and sacrifice, individuality and community. There's this, you know, if if you have children, if you uphold the duties of your parents and look after them in their old age, you don't have freedom anymore. You don't have this sense of individuality because you've got to you've got to sacrifice your time. You've got to sacrifice your money. You've got to sacrifice your efforts and your energy. Raising children, people don't really want to do that. They'll have one kid maybe. It stresses them out. So they'll just box the kids off into um, into school and, you know, the after-school club. They'll get babysitters. Oh, mum, dad, will you look after the kids? Like, it, they just want to get away from the children they, they they want to be able to live their life they want to go traveling and having children is something that gets away with gets in the way of that and you, you, we've got a huge problem even in the uk this hyper civilized society uh, with children being put into uh, care because the parents are just not willing to look after them and they'll give them up for adoption or they'll get taken off them because they, they they're just not giving children their rights i knew one person uh, madness to even sit there and hear it debating over what to spend their last 10 pound note on I, you know my kids need nappies 
but I really want to go out on a night out and get drunk. How is that a choice? How is that even an A-B situation? But why is it that that second option, getting drunk, even pops into your head? If your kids need nappies, it's your duty to make sure that you get, you get the things your kids need. Yeah, but these things were being like bring forth as like a, like a conundrum for people in the modern world. It's it's bizarre, but it's it's linked to YOLO. You've only got one life, and you know people they want to go out and they want to enjoy it. Um, and you you, you get the popularization of these things like optimistic nihilism. So this is a quote from a very popular YouTube channel called Kirk. I can't even say that word. How would you say that? Kursk, Kazat. How good, man. It's a German word. Okay. Um, I'm gonna butcher it. However, I say it. My German friends, I'm sure, can pronounce it for me at some point, but we'll call it that. Um, in a that. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a, it's a very popular YouTube channel, and they have a video on there called Optimistic Nihilism. I did a, a review of this with Subo Ahmed on my channel, uh, for those of you who want to watch it. But this is a quote, word for word, from that video. And he says the following, You only get one shot at life, uh, which is scary, but it also sets you free. Again, these notions of liberty you know, freedom. If the universe ends in a heat death, every humiliation you suffer in your life will be forgotten. Every mistake you made will not matter in the end. Every bad thing you did will be voided. So like you see here, the, every bad thing you did will be voided. This removal of ultimate justice. Yeah. There's nothing that like, you're not going to be held accountable for anything. So don't worry about it. If our life is all we get to experience, then it's the only thing that matters. This again, you've got these notions of liberty yeah, seeping through this video. You've got these notions of, uh, of of extreme liberty. You've got these notions of individualism, that your life is the only thing that matters. If the universe has no principles, yeah, has no deeper meaning, has no deeper purpose, then the only principles relevant are the ones we decide. They use the word we, yeah, but you could quite easily just replace that with the ones I decide. I, exactly. Why Why is it we? Yeah. And there's this sort of, it, it's funny because, you know, when you're talking to some, when you, if you're engaging in apologetics and you're speaking to some disbelievers, they're like, oh, well, you know, if you need God to be good, then, you know, you're an idiot or the blah, 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 blah. I don't need God to be good, blah, blah, blah. And it's, but it, the underlying assumption here is that the average person, like is empathetic, yeah, and and then they'll say, oh, "Well, you should just be care." You, but what if you don't? Yeah, there are there are people out there that just don't give a crap. And then if you say to them, "No, you should care about others," and he's like, "Why?" And you just keep saying, "Because you should, because you should, because you should." What? <laughs> Why should I? Why should anyone? If if you got you know the the psychopaths, you got the Ted Bundys and the this that and the other. This isn't going to be convincing for them. You just should. You don't need God. You should just. You should just what? Like, why are you just acting like it's obvious? It's not clear to people that have problems with empathy because this. There are things like, and you look at studies now. Some people just don't have empathy. They just don't have it. What motivation are you giving them to consider the things that they're doing? And when you, they read things like this, every bad thing you did will be voided. Yeah, there's no, there's, you're not going to be held accountable for anything you did in the afterlife. And then in, that is in the afterlife, there is no afterlife. You're not going to be held accountable. Things just end in a heat death. Whatever you do doesn't matter. And if this life is all you get it to experience, it, it's the only thing that matters. So the, here it's focusing on the I. Yeah. 
if my life is the only thing, because it's not even, I don't get to experience your life. Yeah. So it's this, this use of the pronoun our, like ours to include, I, if our life is all we get to experience, we don't get to experience our life. I get to experience my life. I don't know what it's like for you to go through yours. I can try to have empathy, but one of the biggest problems with trying to communicate these things is like, I've got this mad multidimensional thing in my head, yeah, which is my experience of life connected to my memories, my feelings, my this, my that, everything that I've ever gone through, all of my ideas, they just branch out in this mad picture in my head. But when I'm trying to communicate it to you, I'm forced to do it in this like linear one word at a time. And it never really properly gets across the, the issues that I'm facing. And so there's always this sense of like, I'm alone when trying to communicate things with people. And it, especially when you like as an atheist, when I was an atheist, that's that was a huge problem for me. Like I could never communicate to anyone my trauma, the, the issues that I was dealing with, the things that I was having to think about. And like coming across things like this, I don't know how you can be optimistic with that. And like, and but they just sort of push it as if it's a given that this is like a positive thing, but it isn't necessarily so. And it's almost just this this children at play thing. But as adults, you've just got to make pretend. Just do what you want. Yeah, like the the principles that matter are the ones that we decide. It's this again, this notion I mentioned at the beginning. It's a creative endeavor. There's a subjectivity to it, but that that gives rise to more problems, and you you end up with like a fractured society. If you've got this notion of freedom and individualism, then there's no reason to move with a group. In fact, there's that you see, especially in modern culture, is this this rebellion of tradition, this rebellion against the group, to move away from it, to to express yourself in as unique way as possible, you know. Um, and if liberty, being unique, and personal happiness is the most important thing, you should expect to see society become more divided, because there's an emphasis on that. If you, like, on be unique, be yourself, forget other people, go out and enjoy life. You've only got this one life. If that's the most important thing, that's going to drive you away from making sacrifices for people, for developing long-term lasting relationships. Like even with this, you know, the modern zinner epidemic yeah promiscuity is being pushed is it you know oh a common thing even to young women now is like oh don't get yourself married don't lock yourself down with one person go out there and just enjoy life figure out experience things and it, it, what they're pushing is promiscuity sleep with as many people as you can and figure out what you like but the problem with that is is you know when you've got this for men and women when you have this huge body count it becomes very 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 difficult to maintain lasting relationships because you've not practiced, you've not put yourself in a position where you're trying to prepare yourself for long-term relationships. But quite the opposite. What you're practicing are short-term relationships. You become good at that. And it, it, that's one of the biggest problems that people have is once they start running through people, when they get to the age where they want to settle down, they don't know how to because they've never done it. Yeah, It's like trying to learn um, you know, how to paint by going for a jog like they're, they're completely different things it's not you're not you're not going to learn long-term commitment with the opposite yeah and so obviously that that's going to express itself in sort of personal relationships and things like close to home um but it also gives rise to these um political divides 
um, which we'll see from data like from Pew Research. This this is really interesting. This is only over a period of 20 years. Keep in mind, we're heading into 2024 now. So it'd be really, really interesting to see what this, the next decade's data is going to show. Um, but this is the political divide between Democrats and Republicans in the US. And in 1994, uh, so just a bit more, so Democrats and Republicans more ideologically divided than in the past. Distribution of Democrats and Republicans on a 10-item scale of political values. So in 1994, the, the purple is the overlap. It's the things that Democrats and Republicans value together, yeah, what they, they agreed upon. Um, and the blue is what the Democrats valued independently, um, contrary to what the Republicans valued, and vice versa. The red is what the Republicans valued, which is unique to them. But you can see there's a lot of overlap. And you move into 2004, still a decent amount of overlap. Like There's not that much in terms of difference between them. And then you move into 2014, and then there's just this massive chasm. Like the purple has just shrunk exponentially. And it, and it makes sense, especially when you start looking at like modern political discourse. It does feel like everyone's at odds about everything. Like you're either pro-life yeah, or you're pro-choice. Pro yeah, there's like, these are two hugely different positions. There's no... They don't share a middle ground there anymore. Yeah, there's and it, and it becomes really difficult to have a conversation. And but you would sort of expect this. You would expect this this huge varying of opinions because it's the, liberty is what is the focus. The, the U.S. Constitution is all about liberty, liberty, liberty. Yeah, like be yourself, be an individual. And if you promote that enough, you would expect to see this. You know, everyone going in their own direction, everyone moving wherever they want to go. And there's a really interesting quote by Nietzsche in his book called The Gay Science, Atherism 125. It's a bit bigger than this, um, but this particular snippet is really telling. And he was talking about uh, the death of God. Now, he doesn't mean it in a literal sense. I He doesn't mean it that like God, is, as far as he's concerned, is this living entity that we've gone out and murdered. It's an aphorism in a very poetic way, he's talking about this man, this crazy man that comes down from the mountain and he's talking to the people and he's looking for God and they're laughing at him. And he's very serious. He's not saying it as a joke. He's not pranking them. He's not like, where's God? He's not acting like a clown. Like he, he comes down and it, like the fact that he's mad is made evident because it's the morning, the sun's risen and he's got a lamp and he's looking for God. And the people just mock him and they make fun of him and, they and they're like, oh, where is he? Is he hiding? And they're laughing and they're joking about it. And then like he hits them with this seriousness and he says, where is God? He cried, I'll tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving to now? Where are we moving to away from all suns? Are we not continually falling and backwards and sidewards and forwards in all directions? Is there an up and a down? Aren't we straying as though through an infinite nothing? Isn't empty space breathing at us? Hasn't it got colder? Isn't night and more night coming again and again? Now, this this is linked to this, you know, this graph that I showed you. That you know, in in the Western world, you had this 
fundamental thing that the society was centered upon. That was their religion. Yeah, it was Christianity. And there were common values implicit in that. And this was like the sun that they were chained to. And earth was their community. And it revolved around that. The sun, the, the thing that they were centered upon, their, their common values, the things that they all agreed upon. And that was where they got their guidance. But then something happened and Nietzsche lived towards the end of the 1800s. And he died in 1900, exactly. Um, but there was this, you know, as industrialization was creeping up, and you know you, you had the um the enlightenment period quote unquote um you the, the, all of this crazy stuff was going on um and along with that was the popularization of atheism you you had thinkers like Fjordback, um who was a huge influence on characters like Karl Marx um who were all atheists they were all arguing against religion and they were all pushing this notion of religion as being a man-made concept God being a man-made thing, that we created God rather than God creating us. It was being popularized. And this was seeping into the average person, into the major populace. And they were increasing in luxury. Um, it, this, it became a more common theme. And so this death of God is what he's talking about, the, the lack of faith, people losing faith in the divine. And... He, and he's saying here, we are all his murderers. That is, we have let go of the notion of faith. We're no longer believing in the higher powers in, in the divine. Um, and But he's saying, how do we do this? So he's saying, how were we able to drink up the sea? It's, it, for him, it's like this impossible task. This was so central to, the, to, to Europe in particular, to the Western world for so long, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This was like the thing that the society would lynch around. And then they just they just up and give give it away. They just throw it out the window. They just let it go, even though it was so central to their development for centuries, to getting them to the where they were. And they that that was they were on Earth, and that was their sun, and that is what they all revolved around. And then he's saying, now you've given that up. Yeah, how who how how did you wipe away the entire horizon? Something so important, something so what you would think like being deeply rooted. How is it that when um so what were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Yeah, where are we moving to now? We're, we've got to ask these questions. Where are we going? If we're not um uh br brother Yusuf, I can't hear you. Um, hold on, can you speak again? Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, test, I can test, hear test, you test. now. Yes, I can hear you now. Yeah. How long could you not hear me? No, no, no. Just, just, just for seven seconds. But yeah, okay. no, I, I caught everything. It was just for seven seconds when I said I couldn't hear you. Yeah. Can you okay, see my perfect. Yeah. Please continue. Yeah. So, what was it? I was in. I was in a, a mind state, a flow. Then what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, you're you're speaking passionately. <laughs> so. Yeah, where are we moving to now? Yeah. Uh, where are we going? These are questions we've got to ask. Away from all suns, like are we just are we go, are we just going away from any sense of tradition? 
any sense of collective value? Are we just what we just all got to start deciding things now? Because God was the one who determined all these things for us previously. Yeah, as a as a European people, we we were centered on that. That was the thing that the Europeans were united upon, and that was something. There's another quote um, where he's talking about you know. Like, uh, this wasn't something we could question. You know, God was the all-knowing. God was the all-wise. God was in the position to be able to make these decisions. Man was not. Man was weak. Man was finite. Man, man was ignorant. Who was man to be able to question God? You know, this was the thing that you had to submit to. And it, you know, in the sense of that you did submit to it, it made sense. I'm finite. I'm weak. I don't know nothing. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. You know, insofar as this is from God, you should be obeying it. Yeah. If you believe that, that is from God, obey it. Now, if God is not something like, you know, in the same way that if my daughter, if I'm telling her, eat your broccoli, and she's like, no, no I want ice cream. I'm like, no, you know, like it's bad for you. You can't just live on ice cream, eat your vegetables. She's not in a position to have this debate with me. She's five. Even if I get into the science and that, it's going to go over her head. Yeah. She's not in a position to really engage in that discussion. So I've just got to say, listen, Eat your broccoli. Stop questioning and do what you're told. And Because I'm in a better position to be able to give her that command. And she's not in a position to get into a debate with me. And obviously the the, the relationship between uh, parent and child and uh, God, the creator, the all-knowing and his creation, mankind, is exponentially, uh, you know, in in terms of like the divide between knowledge, it's, it's much more... It's it's grander. It's you know it's it's epic in proportion. So as much as it's absurd for my daughter to argue with me about whether or not she should be eating her vegetables or whether or not she should be allowed to eat ice cream all day every day or chocolates and crisps or whatever it is, um, yeah, as much as you might laugh at that with my daughter and her arguing with me, exponentially more so you would laugh at this notion of debating with God. But that only works insofar as the people believe it. Yeah, when they stop believing, this happens. They move away from their son, and you have to start asking these questions. And then it's like, so what happens now? Are we not continually falling? And then you start talking, and backwards and sideways and forwards and in all directions. What does it? What does a direction even mean anymore? When you've not got this thing that you can relate to, you've not got this like linch point, this value system. How do you know? You know, if you're in the void of space, what does up even mean anymore? What is up? If you're just floating in a void, what is down? How? What's the difference between them? You might like you might not even notice you span around upside down if you're in the void of space and there's nothing to make reference to. If you, for any of you who've played computer games where you're in outer space, like the weird thing, there's this sort of vert. I don't know if you, you call it vertigo. What would you call it? Where your sense of spatial direction just becomes weird. It's like you can spin around. Technically, you're upside down, but it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, because you're like in space. It's mm. it's it's a weird experience, and he, what he's describing here is when you give up these traditional value systems, you, you the society in total as a whole is going to go through that discombobulation type experience. Uh, is there still an up and down? What does that even mean anymore? Aren't we straying as though through an infinite nothing? Yeah, isn't space breathing at us? Yeah, hasn't it gotten colder? With, you know, you, you've got this, like, and he's here. He's describing like the onset of nihilism, this, this, this sickness, a societal sickness, not an individual one, but one that is affecting 
and for him, he was critique Christianity and Europe in particular. Um, and he was talking about the effects of nihilism on Europe as a whole. And he was predicting this cloud of nihilism that was going to come. Obviously, the world has globalized now. And so the impacts of this have moved beyond Europe and looking at the society as a whole. But isn't night more and more night coming again and again? Are we not being, you know, is, is darkness not on its way? And this this is it. This is nihilism. It's here. So, um, yeah, so just a sort of recap, we were talking about how, uh, you know, the, the, the onset of nihilism is, is giving rise to like political divides, etc. And there's, there's all of these issues. And, and what you'll notice is in the previous discussion, there's a sort of underpinning of a particular problem that is to do with morality and like, you know, the, the sense of uh, social identity, collective purpose and meaning. Um, all of these things start to have problems um, related to them. And so this has issues related to things like abortion, whether you're pro-life or um, pro-choice, suicide, whether or not it's something that's taboo, something you shouldn't do, or whether it's something you should assist people in doing, sexual identity, um, the relationships between men and women, the familial uh, norms, these kind of things, race relations, cultural expression, acceptable so acceptable social behaviors whether or not it's okay to have multiple sexual partners um all at once as a man or a woman or um whether or not there needs to be long-term commitment whether or not prostitution is okay the role of authority how should a government um behave what is the the job of a government how um, what's the relationship you know that we mentioned as well the, this offloading of responsibilities if someone dies and has been left dead for three months in their house is that the the neighbor's fault is that the family's fault or is that the government's fault what what's the role of authority how does that work the role of the parent with the child um what is allowed or not allowed all of these things all of these questions are, are thrown out the window um well with regards to what was known what was a part of the tradition you know the approach towards abortion suicide sexual identity all of these things were a particular way historically speaking and when you start to move away from that tradition and you're implementing these notions of liberty, of individualism, et cetera, then you're going to have this, this sort of fracturing of ideas with regards to how we approach each of these subjects. And there's going to be a variance of opinion because that's what's being implemented in the schooling system is ideas of liberty, of notion of free thinking, et cetera. And if you're going to be a free thinker, then it would make sense that you would have a spectrum of thoughts on these particular ideas. And obviously people are going to start to split up into camps. You have the in, the onset of things like the internet and things like that, places, um, you know, the internet environments where these like-minded people can meet, group together, share these ideas, and they can uh, develop them together in, in their own little cliques. Um, this, it, it would make sense that there would be a fracturing. It would make sense that this, um, you know, this split, these moral conundrums um, would begin to to manifest and then you'd have to have, you know, attempted solutions to these. And you see that in the sphere of philosophy when it comes to meta-ethics and um, or they're just ethical discussions, uh, moral philosophy in general. And there are certain solutions that people put forward, things like moral relativism, moral subjectivism, utilitarianism. How is it that we're going to, you know, if, you've, if we've gotten rid of the the traditional way 
of grounding our moral decisions, then what is it that we need to fall upon in order to do that? Now, the, one of the issues is, is a lot of these were fundamentally underpinned by religious tradition. So the, like this notion in human rights that every man is born or created equal or whatever, um, however they word it, or you know the the Declaration of Independence when they when they express these thoughts or these ideas, they get this from scripture. Yeah, what does it mean to say every man was created equal? Well, if you understand it in terms of God, God created man and created them equal, then you can maybe justify it. But if you now have this idea of like atheism being prevalent, or you've got this like this nihilistic understanding that at bottom, no one's created with any purpose or meaning or anything at all. There's no objective value you can you can assign to anything. Only what, as you know, however you say it, Kirk is that, in, we'll just call them in a nutshell, as in a nutshell, say, um, you know, the only things that matter are what we decide, but you know, then that's purely a creative effort. So then, how is it that we're supposed to come to any definite con um, conclusion about how we're supposed to organize a society, what we should consider right and wrong? Um, moral relativism is to, moral relativism is to say that you know, you you what is moral, what is right and wrong is rooted in the collective. Um, but then there's all questions about, well, which collective? Where do we draw the line? Are we talking here nation? Are we talking here on ethic, um, ethnic grounds? Are we talking spatial location? Like what, what is it? And if, you know, how is it, how easy is it to draw these lines? What, what of these places, these mixing pots where these cultures might come into clash? What if in a particular culture that, they they have this cultural superiority notion like you you do with colonialism where they went to westernize the world and you know that we need to take enlightenment elsewhere and and uplift all of these uh, lesser societies and bring them into the, you know the western frame of mind like if that is embedded into a particular culture is that okay according to moral relativism and if it is then how do we deal with these conflicts where for example another culture thinks that this is wrong that culture thinks it is right. You get a conflict. So what is it? Is this just a dog-eat-dog -dog world type of thing? Is that how we resolve it? There's all sorts of issues with moral relativism. Uh, moral subjectivism, it's just whims and fancies. Um, you know. But if that's the case, if me as a subject, I decide that I want to just go out and commit atrocities, then is that okay? Because I have decided it to be so. And if you d disagree is this, you know, just equivalent to a disagreement on flavors of ice cream? Like, how how is it? You know, there's clear tension problems that arise out of these things. Utilitarianism. How do you weigh pleasure and pain? How do you weigh like, and especially when you have limited foresight and you've got to take into consideration things like the butterfly effect. A butterfly could flap its wings one minute. That could give rise to a tornado. Minor decisions, generationally speaking, could have massive consequences. And if we don't have the ability to be able to calculate that far ahead, how can we be sure these decisions, if we're rooting it in this and this alone, are going to be justified? Or that, you know, the, the certain, like, and, and then in terms of collective responsibility, let's say the decisions that this generation make in the West have these in, this impact because of things like colonialism, for example, where they start to implement by force things like liberalism, secularism, et cetera, around the world. But this, in the long run, gives rise to greater problems. And you can make a direct connection between the decisions that have been made by secular liberal societies 
in the long run, like, for example, the dissolution of the family, you know, the nuclear family, um, notions of promiscuity being normalized, etc. What if these have massive consequences intergenerationally, many years down the line? We made mention to it briefly when we were talking about birth rates. So you have this notion of liberty and freedom and this idea of how you know people should be able to do what they want. But then things that include sacrifice are going to become distasteful to that community. Things like having having children. You, so what you'll see is the decrease in population rates, like you do in many secular liberal societies, where people are just not willing to have children anymore. But if you go below replacement, which is about, I think, 2.2, what that means is you inevitably end up with a decrease in the population. And if you have a decrease in population, how what kind of effects is that going to have on society as a whole? If we think if we take one particular area of our economy into consideration, house prices, what is it that determines house prices? Supply and demand. There's people that want a house and the people that are determining the price of these houses are the consumer, the buyer. They what the house is going to cost is whoever is willing to pay the most. And if you've got one house and 10 people fighting over it, the one that is willing to pay the most money, the richest of them all, is going to determine the cost of that house and therefore the um, the cost of not just that, but then also the houses around it. If there's a competition for it, the people who are buying it will fight over it and that will make the cost of this increase. However, if you have more houses than people, yeah, the um, the competition inverses. Rather than it being on the buyer, it's on the seller. If you've got one person and there's 10 houses to choose from and there's only one buyer, the competition is no longer on who is willing to pay the most, but it's on who is willing to sell their house for the least. And this this changes things exponentially. And if you think of it in terms of a society as we're going at the moment, the cost of living, the cost of a house, the cost of rent, all of these things are determined by supply and demand. But you're not going to have the same kind of supply and demand if you have a decrease in your population, a severe decrease, and you look at Japan, they've got huge problems with this on the onset, where they're, they're you know, this this no this notion of the responsibility of children to look after their parents is becoming a problem because people are not having children. But then when they get old, whose responsibility is it to look after them? If you've got back in the day, one family, mum and dad, and they have ten children, okay, it's all of your responsibility to look after these. However, if you've got a society where people are not having children and it becomes top heavy, then the question is, is why do I have to look after this person? I've got my own mum and dad. They only decided to have one kid. That's me. I've got to look after them. This, These 10 people here didn't have any children at all. Well, I've got to look after them as well. Yeah, I My taxes have got to go to, on these people that were selfish and didn't want to invest in their future. Yeah, and and it's funny because it's made to sound as if having children is the selfish thing, and the the whole thing is swapped upside down. But the the point of this little tirade here is just to point out that things like utilitarianism are problematic because you, it's very difficult to think long term about the massive consequences of these these decisions that we're making. Um, and again, like the, even that task alone looking at it, trying to figure out the right course of action, trying to weigh up all of these different things, the greatest amount of pleasure for the greatest amount of people, you know, how to resolve moral conflicts between different cultures when it comes to relativism or between different individuals when it comes to subjectivism. Like all of this is a huge task because there's many, many, many 
heated subjects. And you can see that play out in the popular sphere on YouTube, what goes viral on TikTok, all of these things where you've got these massive debates, people talking over each other, speaker's corner being another one. Like you've just, there's just chaos. There's just chaos and people look at this and they, they don't know what to do with it. Um, there's another quote here. Uh, so they are rid of the Christian God and now believe all the more firmly that they must cling to Christian morality. In England, one must rehabilitate oneself after every little emancipation from theology by showing in a veritably awe-inspiring manner what a moral fanatic one is. That is the penance they pay there. So he's talking here about philosophers like John Locke and, and you know the, these types where they, they're sort of trying to think of how do they ground morality in rationality alone independent of scripture, independent of divine guidance, because they're letting go of religion and they're moving towards secularism. And there's a whole podcast you could probably do just on that topic about how secularism was sort of spawned between inner, Catholic, inner Christian conflicts between the Catholics and the Protestants and, and so on and so forth. But, they, you know, they because they're trying, they've got all these disagreements, they, they have to start thinking about um, secularism and separating church from state. That means you've got to now ground it in something else other than scripture. You've got to be able to think of another way that we can collectively come to an agreement. And so they're, they're thinking that it's something that you can do with reason or by intuition alone, and you don't need to make reference to scripture. And you have the development of all these different sort of um, systems of thought. Um, and it continues, it says, we hold otherwise. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality from one of one's feet. There's, you can't just pick and choose what you want which is effectively what they were doing. They were saying, well, we don't like this. We don't like this. We don't like this. Um, but this is this is intuitive or this is rational. Here's my explanation, blah, 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 blah. Um, and we can hold on to that. And the intuition, he says, is it's, it's not, it's not self-evident. This morality is by no means self-evident. This point has been exhibited again and again, despite these English flatheads, the philosophers in, in England at the time. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things fought out together. By breaking one main concept of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole thing. Nothing necessary remains in one's hand. Christianity presupposes that man does not know. Man cannot know what is good for him, what evil. He believes in God who alone knows it. Christianity is a command. Its origin is transcendent. It is beyond all criticism, all right to criticism. It has truth. If God is the truth, it stands and falls with faith in God. When the, in, when the English actually believe that they know intuitively what is good and evil, when they therefore suppose that they no longer require Christianity as a guarantee of morality, we merely witness the effects of the dominion of Christian value judgment and an expression of the strength and depth of this dominion such that the origin of English morality has been completely forgotten, such that the very conditional character of its right to exist is no longer felt. For the English, morality is not yet a problem. Now, you don't need to go that far beyond the Christian Europe to see how what was right and wrong can vary completely. Um, in Europe, you've got to remember, Christianity was something that spread, that developed over time, and was in competition with things like, you know, the the... the Germanic paganism or the the Romans who had their polytheism and their pantheon and these gods you, you know you read things like um you know the Greek uh poems um Ilias oh what was the other one uh, Homer this was the the means by which the the ancients prior to Christianity would 
they, they would look at the gods as an example of what was right and what was wrong. These were divine beings. That was the, the poems, their epic stories. These were things by which they would draw, um, you know, the, like moral injunctions from. But the problem was is that their gods were so varied and you know, they were in competition with each other that you could find many ways of expressing morality. You know, you have Zeus, who was known for turning into animals and, and raping women. Or like the, you know, the other gods in... Um, the you know the god of war like you see with the vikings and you have this pillaging um mentality where they just go and they, like it was just about pillaging there was there was and you know to die in in war and so on and so forth like there was many many ways that this could be expressed you had loki who's a sneaky god who would deceive and joke and trick and you know there, there was many ways that this could express itself and so it was quite chaotic and there was no reason why they couldn't do that. They were European. Yeah? They, they, people forget that. Christianity, although it's very old, yeah, 2,000 years plus, it's not been around forever. And the European people were not always, and you still find remnants of this, like my people, the Celtics, in terms of the Scottish side, um, their religion was very strange. Like they had many different like human sacrifice elements um within it where children would be sacrificed and the you know that the, there's that why is it that they left that behind why is it that they started to see that as wrong yeah it, it wasn't just in a vacuum it wasn't just one person woke up one day and was like you know what i don't like this we shouldn't do that guys no it was connected to something replacing it it was connected to the onset of christianity and these things becoming forbidden things like lying and, and so on and so forth, which might have been a bit more acceptable if you were to look at one particular pagan god, became problematic because if you read scripture, it forbids it explicitly. Do not lie. That you know that there is a, a massive consequence that you'll find yourself in the hell, hellfire. These kind of things. that it, it shapes European society. And then to just expect that because this has been around so long and these values have become so deeply embedded within the culture that now we can just get rid of the religion and all of this will somehow remain. He's saying here, this is, this is a joke because it, like, especially if you're, you're questioning things and you're promoting skepticism and critical thinking because of these inner conflicts within Christianity, you've got these different sects um, and, and secularism is being pushed to, to just assume these intuitive things will remain was quite absurd and you see the consequence of that now yeah like where people are not even quite sure what a woman is never mind anything else like it, things that everyone took for granted are now being put into scrutiny where like all of these things are just social constructs now all of these things are just up for debate all of these things are no longer self-evident and it, it goes on ad infinitum and this is the um the, the chaos that's coming and there's, there's there's something interesting that we sort of need to think about here. So becoming an idol. Have you seen, O Prophet, the one who has taken their own desires as their God? Will you not be a keeper over them? And this is echoed here in Nietzsche's words when he says, do we ourselves not have to become gods to appear worthy of this, um, the thing that I mentioned here? You know, that this great deed has been done, that God has been quote unquote killed. Where you know they've let go of their tradition, they've let go of their religion. What now? Do we ourselves not have to become gods 
to be to appear worthy of it? Yeah, do we become the dictators of our own purpose and our own meaning and our own moral values, so on and so forth? Um, and then the issues of leaps of faith. Um, I probably skip over this because I do mention this later on. Everyone is forced to take leaps of faith due to a lack of time, ability, and the amount of information that is needed to be processed. processed. Life is not like a philosophy seminar where you just get time to sit down in an armchair with a bunch of people and postulate, what would you do if this train was barreling down a path and you've got to pull a lever and kill one person or 50? Like, you, you know, and you get time to think and argue and debate for 10 hours. Life isn't like that. Like, if you're there and the train is barreling and you've got five seconds, you've got to react and you've got to pull the lever. You've got to take a leap of faith. You don't have time to postulate. You know, there's a, there's a really funny video where there's this guy, he's, like he's dying on the floor. He's like, uh, he needs water. He's, he's dehydrated and he's collapsed. And two philosophers come over and they're trying to debate over whether or not they should give him water. And he's like, just, uh, I need water. And they're like, yeah, but what if he turns out to be the next Hitler? And it's like, ah, but you know, the greatest pleasure. What if I need this water later on? Like, And they're, they're just too busy thinking about how to resolve it. And the guy dies. And it, like, the, the point of it is, is that life isn't like that. You need to make leaps of faith. And you know, it's this is hard for people, especially in the fact that faith has become a dirty word. Faith has been something that has become, you know, criticized heavily. You can, like you can't have faith at all. You know that you've got to be the rational animal. You've got to be the rational man. Um, and so then you have like the nihilist yearning. And so with nihilism, with this lack of meaning or this lack of purpose comes a vacuum, a void. Yeah. And it needs to be filled with things. And so you get the rise of this sort of or an inclination towards a pick a mix religion where people are just picking and choosing uh, the things that they they want from religion and the things that they don't want. And you've got the spiritual, but not religious. And you've got the likes of even like Sam Harris recognizing the, the need of certain elements of religion, but they want to sort of create an atheist version of it. Where he, so he's starting to introduce meditation practices. And, um, you know, they, they recognize that there, there was functionality, there was benefits from religion, and it was a huge mistake to just push away from it completely. Um, and there's this massive reaction to new atheism now where they, they're even creating like atheist churches because they, they lack that sense of community. Um, there's huge problems from that. And a lot of this is linked to this idea. You know, have, have, do you see the one um, who takes their own desires as their God? And so this is linked to value hierarchies. So that is, you know, if you imagine a value hierarchy that is as something necessary everyone has a value hierarchy you you value things um and you don't value things you have not like you i don't want dirt it's abundant it's not valuable to me at all um but it's right at the bottom of my value hierarchy it's still in there and there's other things i do value like i value my my mother my relationship with my family my friends i value god allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and as a believer what is at the top of my value hierarchy is my creator because he is the one that creates everything in the value hierarchy. He is the one that is the determiner of all things. He is the all-knowing. He's he's the one that deserves to be at the top. And everything for the believer is in relation to him. When you wake up in the morning, you pray. Every act that you do throughout the day, you do it for the pleasure of Allah. You do it with him in mind, everything. That's essentially what the true believer should be doing is Allah is at the top of the value hierarchy. He's the one that you value the most. Everything is done in relation to him. Now, the disbeliever, yeah, the one who ceases to value God and put him in his rightful place, do they cease to value things altogether? No, they just move him to the bottom or they move him further down. 
and they replace the top of that value hierarchy with something else. Now, if it's not the divine, if it's not the creative, if it's not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it becomes something in the world by necessity because they don't believe in anything else. You know, if you give up on the supernatural, then all you've got is the dunya. All you've got is the world. And so something in the world becomes the thing that you value the most. And it's not necessarily static. It could change on a daily basis. One minute it might be money. It could be a woman. It could be a car. It could be prestige. It could be fame. It could be this. It could be followers. It could be whatever. But something becomes the thing that you value the most. And then so far as you value it the most, all of your other decisions are in relation to that. So if you become obsessed with a woman, yeah, if like in, if this woman is the the thing that you value the most, then you'll pick a job that you think that she might like or that she might make her like you. The clothes that you wear, the actions that you do, the house that you buy, all of these things will be in relation to what? To her. How is it, you know, if she's the thing that you're obsessed with and that you can't stop thinking about, and every part of your life revolves around that, then all of your decisions are going to be in relation to that as well because they, they feed underneath it. And so she becomes your God. Or if you value yourself more than anything else, yeah, like we, like we said here, do we ourselves not have to become gods? Yeah, do Your desires, do you not turn yourself into a God, into an idol, like, you know, with, with Pharaoh and the way he does? And it's inescapable. Yeah, you end up, you have gods, whether or not you recognize it. And the Islamic concept of worship is holistic. It's not just you pray, you prostrate, you put your head on the ground. You know, If you do things for the thing you value the most, Allah, it becomes worship. If you pay charity, if you obey um, the authorities that you're meant to obey, if you uphold your obligations and your duties, if you smile at a stranger for the sake of Allah, whatever you do, when you give charity, you worship, you act, you clean the pots, you move a twig from the road. Whatever you do for the pleasure of Allah, it becomes worship. And that is to say, whatever you do for the thing you value the most, whatever you do for the thing at the top of that value hierarchy becomes worship. Now, Allah is recognizing here that people can have gods, yeah, as or make, their, make themselves gods or make their own desires gods. And this is whether or not they recognize it as such explicitly, whether or not they admit the thing that they value the most as a god is irrelevant. Because in, in terms of the Islamic context here, that has become a god for them. That that is essentially a god for them, whether they recognize that, recognize it or not. And it's something Nietzsche recognizes as well. Um, and this is it's pharaonic. You know, you, you see this with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh declared, Oh chiefs, I know of no other god for you but myself. So bake bricks of clay for me, oh Hamam, and build a high tower so I may look um at the God of Moses, although I'm sure he's a liar. You know, he's elevated himself. He values himself so much. He's put himself on such a high pedestal that he sees himself now as being a God. And it could be explicit like that, or it could be less explicit. Um, and then lastly, uh, you know, man has this primary motivation, his meaning. Um, and so Viktor Frankl is a famous author who wrote a really, really good book. I really recommend reading it to anyone called Man's Search for Meaning. He talks about man having the will for meaning rather than just Nietzsche talks about the will for power. Um, but, you know, Victor says, no, it's not about a will for power. It's about a will for meaning. People need meaning in their life. 
And Man's Search for Meaning, he says, is a primary motivation in his life and not a secondary rationalization or an instinctual drive. It is a fundamental thing that drives people. And so nihilism here, if this is true, is what Viktor Frankl says, is a huge problem because it creates this conflict inside of people. It creates this turmoil and it leads to the expression of the problems that we've been going through. For example, depression, suicide. Um, you know, hyper-individualism, selfishness, hedonism, all of these kind of things. So part three. So like I said, part three and part part three is to facilitate the main thing, which is going to be part four, which is Islam as an antidote. So I'm just going to run through this quickly. If you want more information, do read the book because it's going to go into it in a lot more detail. And it's just going to be a very quick overview. Um, but this is basically... I'm anticipating that there's going to be certain things, you know, if you're an atheist or if you're someone who's suffering from doubt, um, that might just get in the way of you taking Islam seriously because it's a religion, because it's a tradition or whatever. And so this part is basically just to try to help you overcome these obstacles to at least open you up to the possibility that Islam might be an answer. And insofar as these ob obstacles exist, it's going to be difficult for you to do that. So I wanted to address them first. Uh, to help you. And there, there are lots of common issues that cloud people's judgment. Uh, so, for example, someone might say, why believe in the divine at all? Is atheism not a more natural or a neutral position? Yeah? Is everything, isn't everything about religion just taught? And this is an assumption that they have and they put forward as a common retort. Now, it turns out that that's not true at all, that atheism is not a neutral position. It's not the natural position. There's an article called Religion is Natural by Paul Bloom, who's an atheist psychologist. Um, he says the following in that article. You can get it for free. You just search it on, um, on Google. You can read the whole thing. It's a short article. I think it's like four pages long. This is a snippet from that. He says, the most dra dramatic demonstration of childhood dualism concerns the development of afterlife beliefs. Bering and Bjortland, 2004, told children of different ages stories about a mouse that had died and asked about the persistence of certain properties. When asked about biological properties of the mouse, the children appreciated the effects of death, including the brain no longer worked. But when asked about the psychological properties, most of the children said that they would that these would continue. The dead mouse can have feel uh, can have feeling spelling mistake can have feelings of hunger, think thoughts, and hold desires. Uh, the body was gone, but the soul survives. And children believe this more than adults do in secular settings, suggesting that while we have to learn the specific sort of afterlife that people in our culture believe in, for example, heaven or reincarnation or whatever, uh, the notion that consciousness is separable from the body is not learned at all. It comes for free. So this notion that the only reason you believe in the body and the soul or of life after death is because you're given that by your family um, and that atheism is some somehow this neutral position for children, it's just false. It's, it's a false proposition. And so therefore it is not an objection that atheism is the default position. You can't, you can't use this to try to negate religion or obviously in this particular case, Islam. And Islam has an explanation for why children believe this. And you know, Allah says in the Quran, chapter seven, verse 172. And remember when your Lord brought forth from the loins of the children of Adam, their descendants, and had them testify regarding themselves, Allah asked, am I not your Lord? And they replied, yes, you are. We testify. He cautioned, now you have no right to say on judgment day, we were not aware of this. So in this, and this is linked to this notion of like the fitrah, yeah, that we have some sort of like 
pre-bodied experience of our Lord that we, and although we don't necessarily remember it now that it was there and that this might have some sort of impact or effect on us that makes it easy to recognize God's existence because you've got this experience of him. And whether or not you remember it is irrelevant. It can still have an impact on your psyche and your ability to recognize certain things. So, you know, people say, oh, you know, um, after you die is the same as before you were born. Can't remember anything because nothing happened. But I don't remember when I was born. I don't remember things as when I was a child. Just because I don't remember. Like, I've got scars on my face from when I fell down some stairs. And I nearly died. It cut my face open. I nearly bled to death at the bottom. And that happened when I was one. There's pictures of me when I got stitched up. I don't have a memory of that. But it does not mean it did not happen. And it does not mean that it didn't have some lasting effect or impact on my psyche or to what degree I'm afraid of heights or sharp objects or whatever. Like it, it can have a lasting impact on you because of the experience, whether or not you remember the experience. And so obviously Islam is offering this as an explanation for these um, sort of intuitive beliefs. Uh, there's another verse that says, be, uh, so be steadfast in faith and all uprightness or profit, the natural way of Allah, which he has instilled in all people, let there be no change in this creation of Allah. Um, let there be no change in this creation of Allah. That is the straight way, uh, but most most people do not know. Now, there's a really good uh, set of videos on this, the hidden history of monotheism. If you go on a channel called Epistemics, there's a really good brother who works with Ayira uh, Imran. And it talks about this, like that you have the roots of monotheism wherever you go. You have the roots of this original religion wherever you go. And it raises... Now, You've got to remember here that this is not an argument that because religion is natural, that that means it's true. It is a refutation of a particular obstacle. That is, it's a refutation of the idea that atheism is the neutral or the natural position of the human being. There's separate arguments that can be made as a positive case for Islam in particular. Um, and that's not what this is seeking to do. Uh, and it's often the case when I mention this, people will bring that up and they go, ah, but that's uh, fallacious just because it's natural. And th that's not what I'm arguing. Follow what I'm doing. This is not, um, yeah, it's it's not an evidence for Islam or for religion in particular. It's a refutation of an obstacle to, to just to get you to open up a little bit to to stop using these objections um, to prevent you from looking into a religion at all or into Islam in particular. Uh, another thing is people say, oh, there's no empirical evidence, um, but this is a problem because you know if if someone was to come up to me now and say. You know, when we're looking at this painting, and he's like, where's the painter? I don't believe there was a painter. And you go, oh, of course there was a painter. And he goes, okay, where's the empirical evidence for it? And I'm trying to take him away from the painting. Or I'm trying to get him to think about things outside of the painting or reason him away from it. And he says, no, 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 no. You're limited to everything in the painting. You can only show me what's in there. It's the same thing when you've got the, you know, the new atheist types and they're like, where's God? Where's God? Where's the empirical evidence? What you're saying is that there has to be something in creation that I show you to prove that God exists. Or when they, they show you these memes, they're like, we went into space and we couldn't see God. Like, why, why are you expecting to see God there? Why are you expecting to see the creator in the creation? In the same way that it's absurd to point out that the painter must be in the painting, we as theists posit that it's absurd to ask for this kind of evidence for Allah, or that if we show you empirical evidence, that it would be used as an inference to something outside of creation something beyond it, the creator, in the same way that when we're talking about the painting, we're going to be pointing outside of the painting to um, to get you to the the, the painter. And, you know, it's the same way that if you think of computer games and AI, imagine we create a computer game 
and we create artificial intelligence within it and they start debating about the creator and they're like where is the creator and they're demanding that other ai creatures only show them the things inside and they don't use any reasoning that takes you outside of it or to talk about the transcendent it'd be silly for them to ask for empirical evidence of the thing that created that in the same way that it is for us now not only that there are other types of evidences and i go into these in a lot of detail I'm just going to go over and say, for example, you've got rational, testimonial, circumstantial, anecdotal, um, statistical, uh, just to name a few. But, you know, obviously read them in your own time. Um, I'm just conscious of how long this has been going on. Uh, and I go into more detail about how these are different types of evidences and how even those ask for empirical evidence, for example, the new atheist, they put science on this pedestal. Um, science requires many of these, if not all of them, to some degree as well. Um, testimony. Scientists don't go about doing every experiment in every single field of science. No, they have to rely on the testimony of other scientists and and rely on whether or not they did the test properly, so on and so forth. Testimony is crucial to science as much as empirical evidence. Rational discourse is crucial to science as much as empirical evidence is. Um, circumstantial, anecdotal, all of these statistical are crucial types of evidence that are often neglected. Another objection people put forward, there's too many gods and too too many religions. Which god? Which religion? And again, this is related to this, this idea of an over an information overload. Um but let's yeah, I'll give you a little quick example of why this isn't an issue. Imagine Sherlock Holmes finds a dead body and he's deducing who the murderer is. And he's like, you know, I believe based on this circumstantial evidence, based on this empirical evidence, based on this particular reasoning. Um, the this person is the killer. And then someone breaks into the room and goes, oh, woe is us. Don't listen to him. There's 7 billion people on the planet. It could have been any of them. There's so, there's so many people. Why would you listen to this man? He's pointing out one of them. He's not even bothered to check all the others. There's 7 billion people. He didn't go around China and checking everyone and what their motive was and where they were on the day of the murder and blah, 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 blah. He's not made the effort to check every single possible option Therefore, he's um, unjustified in making a decision at all. And not only that, it's it's impossible to even go over that amount of information. It's impossible to ask everyone. So we shouldn't even bother taking on that job. Let's not do it at all. You quite quickly recognize this person is being silly. Yeah, the, the sheer number of potential candidates is not enough to give up on the notion of, of finding the truth of the matter, of finding the murderer. Because you, there are other means by which you can seek out truth. You can use abduction. You can use an inference to the best explanation based on the available evidence. You can reason. You can you can break things into category. I can break in. I can put the world into a category of those who just were not at the scene of the crime at the time of it, and just not take them into consideration. Or I could just take into consideration those who I know were at the scene of the crime. And then investigate them. I don't need to go about and look into everything. And in the same way, when it comes to religions, you don't need to look into the Romans, into the Greeks, into the Vikings, into the this, into that, into all of these different religions. You can break them up into categories. You can break them up in terms, you can discuss it in terms of monotheism, polytheism, tritheism, um, you know, atheism, blah, blah, blah. You can break them into smaller groups or categories, determine whether or not these one is a better explanation than the other. And then if it turns out, for example, that polytheism is absurd inherently, necessarily, then if anyone comes to you and says, oh, I've got a new religion, it's a true religion, and you, all you need to ask them is, well, 
Are you monotheist? Are you polytheist? If they say polytheist, you can write that off. You don't need to take that into consideration because by necessity, you've already deduced that it's absurd. So you don't need to ask them about blah, 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 because you've already gotten to a point where you can understand this is something I don't necessarily need to look into. You can go through a process of abduction. You can make the job easier by organizing the information into piles, into categories, and then uh, dealing with a more manageable data set rather than this absurd notion that you've got to look into every religion or you've got to take into consideration every god. No, that's not necessarily how things work um, in any field at all. Um, I don't know why they would expect it to be the case with religion. Um, on the wisdom of the old, is tradition something always bad? So people will sometimes just reject something simply because it's a tradition, simply because it's something that's old. Now, that's not a good enough reason to necessarily reject it. There can be reasons, like for example, we got examples of this um, with Ibrahim salam, where he's asking the people, why are you worshipping these idols? And they say, oh, no, we just found our forefathers doing it. So, well, is that a good enough reason to be following it? And the answer to the question here is no. Like you should not just follow things because you found your forefathers following it. But as well at the same time, it doesn't mean that you should just throw everything out of the window. Because there are uh, a number of things that even within the, um, the like the pagan societies, they may have had certain practices that were, were beneficial and that were not discarded off necessarily. Like maintaining ties of kinship um, had a very negative effect in terms of the way the Quraysh dealt with each other when they were tribalistic. Um, and the, 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 that expressed itself in a very toxic way because they would fight each other based on tribal grounds and they would team up with each other based on tribal grounds rather than on higher principles of truth and honor and dignity and so on and so forth. Um, it was just my team versus yours. Now, uh, the ties of kinship thing was still a part of that and that wasn't something that was let go when Islam came. You were, were commanded in Islam to maintain ties of kinship and it's considered haram to to not do that as well. So it's still an important thing. It was still something that was carried over um, and it wasn't just rejected because it was a part of that tradition. So these things um, require some degree of deliberation. You can't just look at something, say, this is old, therefore I reject it. Um, in the same way that you know people, they look and they go, oh, um, the nuclear family of marriage is this age-old thing. That's not a good enough reason to reject it. We need to go deeper into something here and ask more fundamental questions. Um, so don't just reject things just because they are tradition, because they are old. Um, leaps of faith again. And faith has become a dirty word. And atheists constantly act like they don't make leaps of faith. And they go, no, I'm not making leaps of faith. I've got to do um, use reason alone, so on and so forth. Um you know, but it, ultimately it's inescapable. And I already gave examples where you've just got to make decisions in life without all of the information. You make leaps of faith all the time. Now, it, can you really say, I'm going to ask the atheists now that may be watching this, can you really say with absolute certainty that you know that every religion is wrong? Can you say that? Is it possible that there is one that is correct? And that if you did just put a little bit of effort into organizing them into categories and, and you know, spending some time deducing, maybe even just reading the book, Reading the Bible, reading the Quran, reading whatever it is that the you know the um, you know the 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 Vedas by the Hindus, uh, you would be able to start to deduce truthfulness between them. Or are you just making a leap of faith that they're all nonsense, regardless of what language they're in? Have you really given any deliberation to them at all? 
Or is it a coincidence that you live in a secular society and that you happen to be secular? Is it a coincidence? Because you make these people make the same case against theists all the time. Oh, you're only a Muslim because you were born into a Muslim family or into a Muslim community. You're only a Hindu because you were born here and born there. Well, what about you as a secular liberal atheist? Are you not only a secular liberal atheist because you were born into a secular liberal society? And the, the people around you happen to be atheists. That all of the media that you tend to consume has this atheistic tinge or leaning to it. You look at things like um, you know, Rick and Morty and things like that, the things that are being pumped into children now. Is it is it a coincidence? Or should you be as self-reflective as you expect the theist to be as well? You make leaps of faith, inevitably so. And a part of that is just because you don't have the time to go through all of the information. Leaps of faith are necessary. They're inescapable. And you've just got to come to terms with that. At least we as theists can acknowledge when we make leaps of faith. We we say, yeah, we've got to make a leap of faith here. Like the contents of Jannah. I have to make a leap of faith there. I can only really take the testimony of Allah. I've not, I can't reason that in the same way that you can't reason the contents of my room if you've not seen it. Like if you well, use rationality alone to tell me what's in my house, what's in my bedroom at home. Tell me, you can't use reason alone. You would have to make use of testimony of someone who knows or from your own experiences. And when it comes to things like Jannah, the contents of paradise, I'm not going to be able to use reason for that independently. Um, I've got to make a leap of faith with that. I, I've got to say, well, Allah has said so, and I'm going to just take that as a given. There's obviously other reasons as to why I accept Islam. I'm coming from an atheist background, um, raised as a Catholic. Islam wasn't an easy choice for me. That's another story. Um, but, you know, insofar as we're going from the discussion of um, the contents of Jannah without making reference to anything else, I'm going to have to say that's a leap of faith for me. And in terms of you, when if you're an atheist and you say that we just turn into dust, like if you go back to that, um, I hate that I have to keep trying to pronounce that YouTube channel's name, Kirk's Kazagat, whatever it's called. Um, and he's making the claim that everything turns into a heat death, that nothing really matters. He's making leaps of faith. He doesn't know that for, for sure. And neither do you as an atheist know that for sure, that when you die, that that is it. You cannot know that for sure. And you're making leaps of faith out of necessity. And the last thing I'm going to ask is, it's talking about finding balance. So I want you, I'm going to ask you to make a leap of faith with me, that I want you to give up certain things that may affect your psyche, may affect your heart, and may cloud your judgment. And a number of these things are, for example, drinking alcohol, acting promiscuously, um, taking drugs, or you know, going to uh, these these huge raves. I, I want you to try to practice a certain type of lifestyle, and just to see if that has an impact on your state of being. And in the, we've got hadith that talk about this. You know that you um, you are affected by the people that you're with or by the things that you do, that these things, they can make the heart turn in certain directions. Um, and I need you to stand in the possibility that there is something to discover, that there may be things that you are yet to uncover that you do not know. And that in giving up these things that may corrupt your heart, may corrupt your faculties, your, your ability to think, um, that they may get in the way. And that in the same way that I know many people that are very rational, they did really well in things like mathematics. They turned out to be accountants, hyper-rational people, very clever, did really well in university. But then someone broke their heart or they get drunk and they do the stupidest things. They become 
irrational because of the state of their heart, because of the, the, the things that they're consuming, the people that they're spending time with. Um, you know, one lad, he wasn't even drunk. He was just in love with this girl. She broke his heart. And he thought, I know if I send her 10 million messages, maybe she'll take me back. It's like, you're not an idiot. What made you think that would work? Why do you think being pathetic and begging her is somehow romantic or pestering her when she's demanded you leave her alone? Um, what makes you think this, this is a solution to your problem? Someone who was otherwise very clever um, became very irrational because his heart was impacted and that there is a connection between them. It's not about, we're not robots and people talk about it like we are. Like you, you are simply a rational being. Like you only think, and as if your heart has no impact on the way that you think, but it's not true. Your heart and your brain, your rational faculties and your feelings are intimately connected. And there is a level of thinking that goes on in the heart. And whether or not you acknowledge that, and there's been bloody silly YouTubers that try to critique Islam because it even mentions the fact that you think with your heart. Um, but it's 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 quite clear that it happens. That when your heart is impacted, that has an effect on the decisions you make and the way you act or behave. Um, there's even studies that show now that there are a certain amount of neurons in the heart that the brain extends beyond just this little uh, ball of flesh that you have inside of your skull. So take that into consideration. Take your environment and the company you keep into consideration because these do have an impact on you. Um, and there's the hadith that goes into this. It talks about how, um, you know, like people are like blacksmiths or oud sellers. You may spend time with them. You might not even buy anything from them, but you may walk away, away smelling of smoke or soot if you're with a blacksmith, or you may walk away smelling of perfume if you hang around with the oud seller. And these things are things you need to take into consideration. Um, and so now we move on to the final part. Islam as an antidote. So just to preface this, remember this isn't an uh, you know an argument for why Islam is true. This is an argument for why Islam resolves many of the issues that we were currently talking about. So we were talking about the effects and the causes of nihilism. If you accept Islam as the true religion, how does it get in the way of that? How does it circumnavigate that? And especially if you spend time to learn about the religion and come to understand what it offers. So obviously we're speaking here now, not just to the atheist, but to the ignorant Muslim who is simply doing what the Quraysh and the people of Ibrahim did, following what they found their forefathers upon. The Quran speaks specifically against this. It tells you to read. It tells you to learn and not just read in a language you don't understand. It's not to say there are not benefits in reading the Arabic language, whether or not you understand it. Continue to read the Quran like that, but pick up a, a translation or make the effort to learn Arabic so that when you read it, you understand the words that are being said to you. When the Quran was being revealed to the uh, the companions of the Prophet Muhammad it was having an impact on their heart because they understood the language. They understood what it was saying to them. They could think about it. Like the Quran says, ponder upon the verses, ponder upon what Allah is saying to you. You can't do that if you don't speak Arabic and you just pick up a Quran and during the last 10 days of Ramadan, you think, right, I'm going to read this 50 times. And you do, you know, and you're trying to do it as quick as you can. And it, you are one of them that, um, that I prophesied where the, the religion doesn't leave the tongue. It doesn't, it doesn't go beyond the throat. It doesn't enter the heart because you're not engaging in it. You're not learning about it. You're not trying to know who Allah is. What, what are his names? What are his attributes? Who is your creator? How are you going to love the one that made you? If you don't even know anything about him. How are you going to come to love the Prophet Muhammad if you don't know anything about him? Learn about the religion. Don't be someone 
who simply follows what they found their forefathers following. Um, and if you do that, if you look into Islam, you know, read uh, read the Quran, get a copy of it, go through it, read um, books uh, of the apolog- apologetic nature that are trying to convince you intellectually why Islam is true. Go into that, check it out. And if you become convinced, this is what you should expect. If you become to believe in these things, that Allah Azawajal exists, that Tawheed makes sense, that Allah is one, that uh, the Quran is the word of Allah Azawajal, that Allah is worthy of worship, and that Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is a messenger, the final messenger of all of mankind, and a guidance for humanity. If you come to believe these things, then nihilism will cease to be a problem for you. Especially if you, you involve yourself in the Islamic sciences and you try to learn about the religion, you, you save yourself. This is a shield for you from the effects of nihilism. So how, how, how does it help? So prevention uh, is better than a cure. Islam offers protection in the form of prohibition. Um, and it's implemented bottom-up rather than necessarily just top-down. If you, like for example, you take me as a revert. I became a Muslim. When I was reading the Quran, what I was asking myself was, you know, this the, the Sharia that is so controversial that everyone is complaining about. Would me and my people be better or worse off if we followed the Sharia? And I'm looking around me in a council estate in the north of Manchester in the UK, at everyone that I live with, where, you know, my dad died of a heroin overdose when I was nine. His brother died of an alcohol um, poisoning a year later. Um, my grandma was an alcoholic. My granddad was an alcoholic. My neighbor... My my best friend, we don't even know who his dad is. I don't know where they were. Um, his mum was a heroin addict. My other best friend, his mum was an alcoholic. I don't know where his dad was. We were all in these fatherless households. Everyone was addicted to alcohol, to drugs, to promiscuity, to zina. Um, fatherless homes, children chaotically wandering the street, forming little gangs, smoking weed themselves, drinking alcohol. People had gambling problems, massive debts, um, you know, the, the, all of these issues. And I was asking, would we be better off if we all believed in the Quran and we all said, no, I'm not going to drink alcohol because it's forbidden. Would we all be better off or worse off if we looked at the Quran and said, no, I'm not going to take loans out um, and consume usury. Would we have been worse or better off if we prevented ourselves from bad environments, uh, from committing zina, from sleeping people, uh, sleeping with people outside of marriage, gambling, would we have been better or worse? The, the bottom line of it was is that there was wisdom in all of this. And I could not help but say, regardless of how controversial it was for me at the time and how much you know, I didn't like the idea of the Sharia when I was an atheist, I had to say and admit, this would have been a shield for those who had accepted it. This would have improved my community if we just followed this. And so, yes, prevention is better than a cure. And implemented, it will protect you from certain conditions that lead to pessimism, that lead to hopelessness. Um, and what's really funny, or not funny, but interesting, um, is Nietzsche on his land. Nietzsche is put forward as this leading figure of, of nihilism and a critique of religion. I'm not to say he would have agreed with Islam wholesale. Many of his critiques of Christianity would probably overlap into Islam as well. Um, but, it, but what's interesting is, is what he thought of Islam in particular. What did he have to say about Islam? And in his final book, The Antichrist, yeah, his final one, before he went crazy, before he's lost his mind, 
he he was he was going to write his Magnus Open, this like huge thing. He didn't get to finish it. He wrote a little tiny bit, and ended up being a small book. Um, but in that, he mentions Islam, and he, he says the following. Um, I can't remember which aphorism it is. It's towards the end. But if you check the book, all the references are there. Um, he says the following: Christianity destroyed the harvest we might have reaped from the culture of antiquity. Later, it also destroyed our harvest of the culture of Islam, the wonderful Moorish world of Spanish culture, which in its essence is more closely related to us, that is the German people or the Europeans, um, which appeals more to our sense and taste than Rome and Greece was trampled to death. And now he's talking about um, the conquistadors and they, they, the, um, the, what's the, the Christian jihad, what's, what's the Christian jihad called again? My mind's gone blank. Crusade. Crusades, Crusades. I don't know why I forgot that. Uh, so when the Crusades came into Spain and took over um, Moorish territory, or they, when they took over the Iberian Peninsula, um, he's saying they, you know, it was trampled to death. I do not say by what kind of feat. Why? Because it owed its origin to noble, to manly instincts, because it said yes to life, even the life so full of the rare and refined luxuries of the Moors. Later on, the Crusaders waged war upon something before which it would have been more seemly in them to grovel in the dust, a culture besides which even our 19th century would have seemed poor and very senile. Of course, they wanted the booty. The Orient was rich. For goodness sake, let us not forget our prejudice. Crusades, superior piracy, that is all. German nobility, that is to say, a Viking nobility at bottom, was in its element in such wars. The church was only too well aware of how German nobility is to be won. German nobility was always the Swiss guard of the church, always at the service of all the bad instincts of the church, but it was well paid for. Fancy the church having waged its deadly war upon everything noble on earth, precisely with the help of German swords, German blood and courage. A host of painful questions might be raised on this point. German nobility scarcely takes a place in the history of higher culture. The reason of this is obvious. Christianity, alcohol, the two great means of corruption. So keep in mind here now that he's making a a comparison between Christianity and alcohol. He's saying both of these things are a massive means of corruption for the European people. He says, as a matter of fact, choice ought to be just as much out of the question between Islam and Christianity as between an Arab and a Jew. The decision is already self-evident. Nobody is at liberty to exercise a choice in this matter. A man is either a chandler or he is not. War with Rome to the knife. Peace and friendship with Islam. This is what the great free spirit, that genius among German emperors, Friedrich II, not only felt, but also did. What? Must a German in the first place be a genius, a free spirit, in order to have decent feelings? I cannot cannot understand how a German was ever to have was ever able to have Christian feelings. So here he's saying war and war with Rome to the knife, peace and friendship with Islam. Like he's holding Islam up as a as he said, with something with noble they give up on marriage, they give up on having children, um, they become absolute asceticists. Within the religion of Islam, what do we ask for? We ask for the best of both worlds. And uh, uh, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he would tell us to wear uh, the best fragrances, to wear nice clothes if you had them. 
to present yourself well. To, we were told to clean ourselves. A huge problem in uh, Europe. Um, and one of the things that gave rise to massive problems when they went over to the, uh, to the Americas um, was that not cleaning yourself was seen as a form of piety. And the, the, you know, the, the Muslims brought soap to Europe and we had that as part of our rituals, wudu, ghusl, like as, as a massive part of Islamic tradition. Cleanliness was emphasized to a huge degree. Whereas when the Christians went to South America, they took a lot of diseases over there because they they, they didn't clean themselves very often. Um, and that, that was, I don't know, <laughs> they, they, they just linked that to piety. And so he's he's describing it here as being something more noble, something better, something that the German people would have been um, more associated with. So now the question is, is Nietzsche was, he wasn't a nihilist in the sense that nihilism was the end goal. Nihilism was like, you know, a journey that we were all going to have to go through and that we had to create something else. And this is where he talks about the Ubermensch and things like that. His philosophy wasn't necessarily one for all of humanity. It was for a select group of people um, that he would call the Ubermensch. Everyone likes to think they're the Ubermensch, but the majority are not. The majority are the herd as far as he's concerned. So there's 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 a lot of conflict between his philosophy, his thinking, and Islam. Um, but there is something in Islam that he saw as an antidote um, somehow. And the question is, is like, why? Why did he think that Islam would have been better for the Europeans than Christianity? What was it about Islam in particular that, that makes it a good antidote to nihilism? Why did Nietzsche see it as a better alternative? Um, and we're going to go into that now. So Islam deals with things like the, the post-truth in ep epistemic nihilism. So Allah says in the Quran, chapter 17, verse 81, and declare the truth that truth has come and falsehood has vanished. Indeed, falsehood is bound to vanish. We also know Allah to be the all-knowing and the truth. These are two names that he has. And he knows even when uh, what we hide from ourselves, what you know, the deepest elements. And I was talking to you about one of the problems of communicating with people is this issue that no matter how many words I use, I never feel like I've probably, uh, properly taken what's going on inside of me, my experience, and put it inside of the person I'm talking to. Um, like there's, I always feel alone in my ability to communicate things um, when I suffered from depression when I was a lot younger, I would go to the um, the shrink, anything you Americans call them, or the you know the psychiatrist, and I would try to express what I was going through. I would try to express my anguish, but it never felt like the words sufficed. It never felt like I could properly communicate what was going on in my head to the world. And there was a sense, and especially as an atheist, there was a sense of being completely alone. Now, alternatively, with Islam. You have the opposite. You don't even need to express it to Allah. He already knows it. He knows everything about you that you reveal and that you hide from others and from yourself. There is nothing he does not know, not even a leaf falling or you know a, a grain of sand on the earth that he's not aware of. He's the all-knowing. And so if you turn to him, when you talk to him, when you try to um, you know articulate yourself, you can be confident that he understands exactly what's going on. He's the all-knowing. He is the all-wise. He is the truth, al-haq. And because of this as well, his testimony would be the best form of testimony. Anything that he gives us would be a pure form of knowledge. And it would be what is important. And this isn't just in terms of like useless facts, like how many hairs are on the head of this particular dog or, you know, what is uh, the the distance of the, um, you know, the, the sun from the earth. Like these things themselves are 
not necessarily important pieces of information, but he would know exactly what to tell us about what's important, how to organize ourselves, what is the purpose of our life, what's the best way of interacting with each other, what are our roles and duties within society. He's in the best position to be able to tell us all of these things, how to organize on an individual level and on a communal level uh, over grand periods of time. Because he is the all-knowing, because he is the all-wise. Whereas when you deal with people, um, like if you're looking at like the, the, the consequences of ethical philosophy, for example, and utilitarianism and all of the, like, and how that expresses itself on the political sphere, keeping in mind the political divide that we were showing you before, you, you just lead yourself to chaos. The human being on their own, using reason alone, is going to struggle. Why? Because reason is useless without information. And we are limited in terms of how much information we have. We are limited in terms of our foresight. We have this epistemic horizon. Um, we can only see so far into the future if we can see that far at all. It's a, it's you know it's like trying to play chess twenty moves ahead, thirty moves ahead. It's very difficult because there's a number of variables you just don't have access to. So inevitably, problems are going to come from humans trying to act independently. However, if a lot as well exists and he is he has these attributes, he is the all knowing, etc. If he is giving us a testimony, if he's giving us guidance. This guidance would necessarily always be better than whatever guidance mankind independently would produce. Um, and so, you know, you would find truth here and you cannot deny truth because we are being told we, you know, we're, we're being given it explicitly. And there's a number of hadith that I want to share with you here as well. We're also promoted to be truthful people, not to be liars. Now, the question is, is as an atheist or as a nihilist, what's the harm in lying? If you get a benefit from it in some way, who cares about the lie? Yeah. Now, in terms of the uh, the liar in Islam, it's, it's important here because we, we've got this hadith narrated by Abdullah bin uh, Az Zubair, and he says the following: I said to my father, I do not hear from you any narration hadith of Allah's apostle, as I hear his narration uh, from so and so. As Zubair replied, I was always with him, the Prophet. And I heard him saying, whoever tells a lie against me intentionally, then surely lets him occupy his seat in the hellfire. Now, this is important because when it comes to the tradition, when it comes to the collecting of hadith, when it comes to you look at the ulama and the way that they took this seriously, you've got to keep in mind, these were people that believed in Allah. They believed Muhammad was a messenger of Allah and they believed what he was saying to them. Now, if he's telling them, listen, if you lie about me, you've thrown yourself in the hellfire. They have a huge motivation here now to make sure that they collect truth. And this is when you look at the, the studies of Hadith sciences. They were so like um, in-depth in terms of the way that they would sift through this information. like To the degree that I, as a non-Muslim, were given um, Hadith that sounded good yeah, as evidences of Muhammad's prophethood. And people would share these Hadith with me. And I'm like, oh, look. You know, obviously he was a prophet. Why would he do this or why would he do that? And it turned out that the hadith that they were sharing with me were graded as fabricated. The people didn't care because they were just like, you know, treating dawah like a sales pitch. They just wanted a shahada. Whereas the the scholars, the ulama, the ones who collected these hadith, they weren't bothered whether or not this hadith made Muhammad look good. They were bothered about whether or not it was true. And so even if it looked good, they would mark it as fabricated. And there's many controversial hadith that people bring up and argue about today in apologetics um, that were mar marked as um, legitimate, as sahih, as 
graded as being authentically from the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so they weren't concerned whether or not the disbeliever may like this or not. They preserved it. And you can see that when you look at the tradition that there was this hyper concern for truth. Allah also says in the Quran, you know, um, uh, you know, be, be truthful, uphold justice and truth, even if it's against your own selves or those you love. Uh, and this is this is a massive theme in the religion. We have other um, hadith. Uh, so this one, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can see here, you are the Lord of the heavens. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You are the Lord of the heavens and the earth and what is, whatever is therein. You are the truth and your promise is the truth. And you, your speech is the truth, and your uh, meeting you is the truth, and paradise is the truth, and hellfire is the truth. All of the prophets are the truth, and the hour is the truth. Oh Allah, I surrender to you, and believe in you, and depend upon you, and I repent to you. And in your cause I fight, and with your orders I rule. Please forgive me my past and uh, future sins, so on and so forth. So there's this emphasis on truth, 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 truth. Um, we have another one here. It is obligatory for you to tell the truth. For truth leads to virtue, and virtue leads to paradise. And the man who continues to speak the truth and endeavors to tell the truth is eventually recorded as truthful with Allah. And beware of telling a lie. For telling a lie leads to obscenity, and obscenity leads to hellfire. And the person who keeps telling lies and endeavors to tell lies will be recorded with Allah as a liar. So not only is truth being emphasized and being upheld, the notion of being a liar is being pushed down, and there's massive consequences for it. And that, like, and if you've got a bunch of people, they're making the effort to memorize the entire Quran. They're making the effort to memorize thousands and thousands of hadith and the chains of narration. And they're making the effort to memorize all of these different books and the sciences of this and the sciences of that. They're, they're concerned with uttering something that might drag them into the hellfire. Truth becomes something that's not just subjective, not just something. Oh, this makes me feel nice. Let's share it with the disbelievers because that might make them one of us. No. It's, was this true? Did this happen? It doesn't matter if we could use it to our favor. If we cannot be certain that it didn't happen, we're not accepting it. To the degree that they would accept hadith from certain um, sahabi or certain scholars that were considered uh, within their right mind and pious and etc. Um, but then once the particular sahaba became old and became senile and was known to start to lose his senses because of old age, they would begin to reject hadith that came from him after that point because they they couldn't trust that his um, condition didn't impact the validity of the things that he was sharing. Truth is a huge concern. And a Muslim must uphold the truth. You cannot be a Muslim and an epistemic nihilist. One negates the other. You can't go around telling lies, being dishonest when you're a Muslim. If you're following it as you are being commanded to in the Quran and the Sunnah, the, you like you you're saved from epistemic nihilism if you believe in Islam, if you believe in Allah, and if you believe in the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and that the Quran and the Sunnah come from a divine source. you you have a barrier. This is your shield to epistemic nihilism. Now compare that with with the nihilists. What means that they have to attain truth without God? How are you going to attain truth at all with these limited faculties, with all of this information that you can't sift through, with all of that difficulty? Islam combats pessimism and it instills hope. Pessimism is absolutely impermissible in Islam. We're, we are, in a sense, tragic optimists. That is to say, uh, we expect the worst because we expect trials. Yeah, We expect that um, that life is going to be difficult, um, but we hope for the best because we don't see these trials as being meaningless. We don't see them as being pointless. We see that there is something in the end translates into a good in the end. And we again, we've got a number of verses from the Quran and the Hadith 
that support this. So we're not burdened with more than we can bear. Allah says in the Quran, Allah does not require of any soul more than what it can afford. All good will be for its own benefit and all evil will be to its own loss. The believers pray, our Lord, do not punish us uh, if we forget or make a mistake. Our Lord, do not place a burden on us like that, uh, like the one you placed on those before us. Our Lord, do not burden us with what we cannot bear. Pardon us, forgive us and have mercy on us. You are our only guardian. So grant us victory over the disbelieving people. We're even being given here a dua, a prayer, ask you know like that makes all of this very clear that we do we you know we're asking Allah don't burden us beyond what we um we can manage and he's saying he prefaces this dua with the fact that he will not do that it's a promise from Allah that he's not going to burden us um we also know this is the tragic bit that we're going to be put to the test Allah says in the Quran do people think once they say we believe they will be left without being put to the test we certainly tested those before them and in this way Allah will clearly distinguish between those who are truthful and those who are liars. Again, back to the epistemic nihilism thing. There's a point on there. The, the, the truthful are the ones that will be victorious. The liars will not. Um, but also this notion of the fact that we, we're going to be tested. That this is going to be a means by which we can prove ourselves. Well, uh, we have this other hadith the Prophet ﷺ said, No fatigue, no disease, no sorrow, no sadness, no hurt, no distress befalls a Muslim. Even if it were the prick he receives from a thorn, but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expiates some of his sins for that. So anything you go through, there's a meaning to it. There's a point to it. That um, There's another one, stranger the ways of the believer. For there is good in everything, every affair of his. And this is not the case with anyone else except in the case of the believer. For if he has an occasion to feel delight, he thanks God. Thus, there is good in him for it. And if he gets into trouble, he shows res and shows resignation and endures it patiently. There is good in it for him. So... All of these things, they translate to something that's eternal. They translate to something on the day of judgment, on the afterlife, when you're looking at your sins and you're seeing them dissolve because of the burdens that you felt. It'll be a case of where you, you would have asked Allah, oh Allah, I wish I had have had more suffering in my life. Looking at how all of these things are dissolved and how I'm being forgiven because of my patience. I'm being forgiven because of my thankfulness and my gratitude. So, uh, and another the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said, uh, Allah laughs at the despair of his slaves, although he soon changes it. I said, oh, messenger of Allah, does the Lord laugh? He said, yes. I said, we shall never be deprived of good by a Lord who laughs. So even in this, like, there's this notion of don't worry. Whatever it is you're going through, however hard things may seem, in the end, it will not be as bad as you think it did. Another hadith, messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, among the inmates of hell, a person who had led the most luxurious life, you know, the kind of life that people, Muslims included, look at with envy and they're like, ah, oh, I wish I could have a life like that. A person like this will be taken from the world and he will be brought on the day of the resurrection and dipped into the fire and he will be asked, oh, son of Adam, did you ever experience any comfort? His response will be, no. Did you happen to get any luxury? He will reply, by Allah, no, my Rabb. Uh, and then one of the people of Jannah who had experienced extreme misery in his life, uh, in the life of this world, will be dipped into Jannah. He's not even got to experience anything in it. He's not walking around the mansions. He's not enjoying the fruits or, uh, you know, in, inclining on the, reclining on the, the lounges. He's just dipped in it. A part of his body is placed in it. And then he will be asked, oh, son of Adam, did you ever experience any misery? And he will say, um, did you ever experience any misery? Did you ever encounter any difficulty? He will say, by Allah, no, my Rabb. I neither experience misery nor pass through hardship. This is not that hard to conceive because this kind of thing happens in the dunya. You, you, you have a nightmare and you wake up from it 
you go about your day like nothing happened. It could have been traumatic. You could have been getting eaten by zombies, chased by monsters, falling from the sky to your death. You wake up, you get over it, you move on. Um, you know, the, I, I, I explained before, I fell down some stairs as a child. I can't remember that now. I'm over it. There's, I, I used to go to casinos when I was younger as a disbeliever. And you would see these little old Chinese men. They would walk in. They looked like they had every ailment under the sun. But if they won a hand at poker, all of a sudden, it was like they were cured. All of this joy made them forget any misery that they had. People, they go through really difficult lives. They win the lottery. And in the moment that they win the lottery, all of their woes leave them. And there's a film, um, Patch Adams uh, by Robin Williams, where he talks uh, you know, about how laughter and pleasure and joy is an antidote to suffering. And that you can overcome all sorts of misery because of the pleasures that you may experience. Now, if you think in terms of what is being promised to the slaves of Allah, we've got this hadith, the Prophet said, Allah said, I have prepared, prepared for my righteous slaves such excellent things as no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, nor any human heart can ever think of. Now, if we can overcome the, the the suffering that we do by simply laughing or winning a game poker or or you know getting the lottery or whatever if you if you read the quran and look at what is being promised in jannah is it that hard to believe that an infinity of that an infinite amount of that of incomprehensible pleasure would make up for whatever it is that you've gone through however hard you think it is Allah could make you forget it like it never happened in the same way he made me forget me falling down the stairs i've got scars to remember it by I know it must have hurt. Yeah, there was blood all over the floor. My mum or my auntie fainted, whoever found me. Um, I had 14 and odd stitches. The scars on my face there, there, on my lip, and along there. It must have hurt, but I do not remember it. Now, if that is possible, I've got scars on my arm uh, that I do remember, and I put my arm through a window as a kid. Um, I got bit by a tiger. That's a long story. Um, on my finger and on my back. Like It hurt at the time, but time passes, and you forget. You know, they say time heals all things and there's no amount of suffering that can occur in a finite life that Allah cannot make up for it with an eternal afterlife in the in Jannah. So whatever it is you're going through, it, you know, it has this ultimate meaning because it is being placed in the context of the fact that there is a greater good at the end of it, that it is a test that when you pass, all of it will be worth it, no matter how difficult life may have been. So that there's no... Uh, there's no sense of being a pessimist within Islam. When you believe these things and you understand this to be the truth, then you, you cannot walk away from that as a pessimist. You cannot be anything but someone who has hope. And what hope is there without God? If you, do not, if you do not have these things, if there is nothing but pain and suffering at the end of it, they say YOLO. The majority of people don't get to live this, you know, the amazing life like that that's mentioned here at the beginning. Um, with the inmate of hell who had the most luxurious life in this world you know not they are a minority of people a tiny handful the majority of people live in poverty they live with difficulty they live with strife they live with things where you know like you've got to work they've got to pay bills they've got all of the stresses of life and even the rich have stresses you know you look at the amount of um celebrities that end up committing suicide or have drug addictions and problems and things like that the, this the luxury of this world, does not satisfy a person's desire for meaning, that there are other things that they require uh, to pursue. Now, Islam is something that specifically feeds that desire. It, 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 it gives it in abundance. 
um, and insofar as you you believe in Islam and you're convinced of it and you study it and you understand these things, it's impossible to be a pessimist. Um, now, there's a, a quote here from the myth of Sisyphus, uh, which is a, a, a philosopher called Albert Camus, which is a French um, existentialist. Um, and like he's recognizing this. I'll leave it there for you to read in your own time. But the point of this, in short, um, is that the most important question is, you know, is is um, I'll, I'll just read it, actually. There is um, one, but but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Is worth is life worth living? Dreaming whether life whether or not life is worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, whether the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or twelve categories, comes afterwards. These are games. Um, one must first answer, and if it is true, as Nietzsche claims, that the philosopher to deserve our respect must preach by example. You can appreciate the importance of that reply, for it will precede the definitive uh, the, the definitive act. These are f- the facts of the heart. Uh, the, these are facts the heart can feel. Yet they call for careful study before they become clear to the intellect. If I ask myself how to judge that this question is more urgent than that, I reply that one judges by the actions it entails. I've never seen anyone die for the ontological argument. Galileo, who held a, sac- a scientific truth of great importance, abjured it with the greatest ease as soon as it endangered his life. In a certain sense, he did right. That truth was not worth the state. Whether the earth or the sun revolves around the earth, uh, it, uh, whether the earth or the sun revolves around the other, it's a matter of profound indifference. To tell the truth, it is a futile question. On the other hand, I see many people die because they judge that life is not worth living. I see others paradoxically getting killed for the ideas or illusions that give them a reason for living. What is called a reason for living is also an excellent reason for dying. I therefore conclude that the meaning of life is the most urgent of questions. This, this is this is the, like, you know, even for the existentialists, the, those who conceive of nihilism, recognizes this, this is important. This is more important then what revolves around what? What's what is the meaning of life? Uh, Islam combats severe skepticism and moral nihilism. Skepticism is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, like we can see, uh, for, for example, I, I was only able to become a Muslim in the first place because I applied skepticism to the typical tropes and opinions that people would push in popular media about Muslims and about Islam. I had to become skeptical of them in order to overcome them and become interested in it in the first place. Uh, so in and of itself, it's not bad. Um, and Islam is itself like you can see a certain amount of skepticism, um, being applied like by the Prophet Ibrahim alayhi for example, with the people that he was with, they're they're worshiping idols, and he's asking them why why are you worshiping this? Um, but the the question is, is Islam anti-intellectual, as some claim? And we've got verses in the Quran that command you to use your intellect. For example, uh, verse uh, two hundred and forty-two from Surah Baqarah. It says, does, does Allah Azawajal, make clear to you his verses that you might use reason? Um, and disbelievers, you mentioned this verse earlier as well, um, disbelievers regret not using their intellect, chapter 67, verse 10, and they will lament, if only we had listened and reasoned, we would not be among the residents of the blaze. And again, like I mentioned the story of Ibrahim, he said, then do you worship instead of Allah that which does not benefit or, or harm you at all? Uff, to you and what you worship instead of Allah then will you not use reason think what are you doing these he destroys all the idols and they're like you know who did this he says to them ask them then they're looking at each other strange because they recognize 
These things can't help us with this. It's like, okay, if they can't even help themselves, why do you act as if they can help you? Why, like, if I can destroy them, what's the point of worshipping them? Um, but skepticism has limits. At what point do you become skeptical of skepticism? You know, how far should skepticism go? You need to understand it as a tool that has its uses, but you can't sit in it in a permanent state of being. And you see, uh, it's sort of like when, when it comes to the religion or religion in general, or talking about religion, atheists and anti-religious apologists, they will sit in a permanent state of skepticism about any proposition. They'll throw things that are necessary for science out of the window, the principle of sufficient reason, so on and so forth. Like they'll just go, no, I'm skeptical of uh, skeptical of this in the context of religion. But then in the context of science, they're quite happy to accept the principle of sufficient reason. When they're looking at things, everything has to have a certain um, degree of uh, explanation as to why it is the way that it is. They accept it there, throw it out the window there. And there's really good examples of this happening. There was um, a debate between a few of the brothers that are co-hosts with me on the thought of entry podcast with the uh, I think three atheists and like it was a there was a clear example of that taking place there um instilling patience contentment and perseverance the Quran and the Sunnah are filled with stories which teach patience uh, the story of Musa alayhi salam with Khidr where he's you know the whole point is uh, Khidr is telling him that you you will not be able to be patient with me and he goes through one test after another um and ultimately it's shown that Musa couldn't be patient with him, and he explains the reason for everything that was going on. Noah is said to have been someone who gave dawah for hundreds of years, only for them to all be drowned in the flood. How is that not like an amazing uh, display of absolute patience? The story of Yusuf salam in the prison, being wrongfully imprisoned, you know, being abandoned by his family, his brothers in a well, going through all of the suffering that he went through, and all of the strife, but he persevered with patience. And the stories in the Quran show this. He was always patient. He was always steadfast. He never gave up on his Lord. The Sirah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, another great example of patience. You look at the, the struggles that they went through for the first 10 years in uh, in Mecca. They, you know, you could see no victory in sight if you were just to look at that. If you were an atheist living among them, you wouldn't put your money on him coming back in a few in another decade or so and conquering Mecca. They were in a terrible state. They were being boycotted. Many of them were being tortured and starved to death, but they persevered. They were patient and they got victory in the end. And, you know, you've got the, the stories of the companions of the prophet and the the, the patience that they um, they displayed is, is awe-inspiring. And you can, when you, when you read these in the context of, they were believers. They had severe conviction in Allah, in the prophet Muhammad, to the degree that these things could occur. Um, so this is an excerpt from Martin Ling's uh, uh, Muhammad, his life based on the early sources. It says the following. Among the most relentless of the persecutors was Abu Jahl, someone who got a special mention as being one of the inhabitants of the hellfire in the Quran. Um, if a convert had a powerful family to defend him, Abu Jahl would mercilessly insult him and promise to ruin his reputation and make him a laughing stock. If he was a merchant, uh, he would threaten to stop his trade by organizing a general boycott of his goods so that he would be ruined. If he were weak and unprotected uh, and off his own clan, he would have him tortured and he had powerful allies in many other clans whom he would persuade to do the same with their own weak and unprotected converts. It was through him that his clansmen tortured three of their poorest confederates, Yasir, Sumayr, and their son Amr. They refused to renounce Islam and Sumayr died under the sufferings that they inflicted on her. Say, 
regardless, like they were tortured to the degree that one of them died and they had such conviction, they had such patience, despite the suffering that they they refused to let go of his hand, despite all of the, the trouble that they were incurring. And like when you read these, you cannot help but be inspired. You cannot help but be given motivation to be patient yourself because you recognize there is something better waiting for you in the end. Um, duty and responsibility. Islam is a complete way of life and duties and responsibilities of everyone within an environment, within a, a, a community is expressed very clearly within the Quran and the Sunnah. All forms of relationships have certain obligations, certain rights, certain duties. So it's not just about what you have to do, but what you are owed. There are rights off the parents, but there are also rights off the children and they work inverse. So the rights of the parents is a duty for the child. The rights of the child is a duty for the parent. And these obligations are very clearly laid out and set out. So you know what those duties and responsibilities are. For example, the duties to the parents. Um, Allah says in the Quran, for your Lord has decreed that you worship none but him and honor your parents. If one or both of them reach old age in your care, never say to them even oof, nor yell at them. Rather, adjust them respectfully and be humble with them out of mercy and pray, my Lord, be merciful to them as they raised me when I was young. Uh, now, compared to, to the growing phenomena of throwing parents into all people's homes, individual autonomy and liberty are considered more important so that if I have to look after my parent, that means I'm, I'm not going to be able to live the life that I want to live. So it's better for me to just throw them into an old people's home or just to neglect them, visit them once every now and then if they're lucky. We've got um, epidemics of severe loneliness. This is an article from the NHS. Loneliness in older people. Older people are especially vulnerable to loneliness and social isolation, and it can have a serious effect on health, but there are ways to overcome loneliness, so on and so forth. Hundreds of thousands of elderly people are lonely and cut off from society in this country, especially those over the age of 75. According to the UK, more than 2 million people in England over the age of 75 live alone, and more than a million older people say they go over a month without speaking to a friend, neighbor, or family member. Over a month. And this is this is speaking of the duty of the friend, the neighbor, and of the family. That these people can go so long without any human interaction. And that this is so common in England. This is supposed to be like this amazing place. You know, the the, the you know the, the modern world. Look at us, the bastions of enlightenment. And and yet two million elderly people over the age of 75 are completely neglected, where we have reports of people dying and their dead bodies being undiscovered for months. How is this? How is this superior? Where's the duty? And this offloading of responsibility that we mentioned earlier. Abuse of the elderly people is common. Around one in six people, 60 years and older, experience some form of abuse in the community settings during the past year alone. Rates of abuse of older people are high in institutions such as nursing homes, where we're just throwing our elderly willy-nilly, without a, a second thought, on long-term care facilities, with two in three staff reporting that they have committed abuse in the past year. Two in three staff. Rates of abuse in older people have increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Abuse of older people can lead to serious physical injuries and long-term psychological consequences. Abuse of older people is predicted to increase as many countries are expecting rapidly aging populations linked to antinatalism, as you mentioned before, because people are not willing to have children. So this burden is being put on other people who are being paid minimum wage. They don't really want to be there. They've got bills to pay. And they don't really love or have a lasting connection with these people. You're always going to have exceptions to the cases where you will have kind souls in there. But like for the most part, this is just another job. And a lot of these people may be senile. They may feel othered. And you, like 
you can't go into this job feeling sorry for them all because it just breaks you. And so there's a part of it where the empathetic have a high turnover rate where they can't stay in these jobs for too long because it breaks the heart too much watching people deteriorate, watching people break down. Whereas the stone hearted are much more likely to stay in these environments because they don't really care about the people they're looking after. That's a problem. That's And that, that explains why you end up with like two and three staff reporting to have committed abuse in the past year. This is from um, who world health organization. Um, so, you know, these are huge problems. However, you look at the Quran and the, the emphasis that it puts even on strangers, not just those who are your parents or those who are close to kin, but it says, so give your close relatives their due, as well as the poor and the needy traveler. You don't even need to know them. Someone passing by. Uh, that is best for you who seek the pleasure of Allah and is they who will be the successful. Whatever loans you give, only seeking interest at the expense of people's wealth will not increase with Allah. Whatever charity you give, only seeking the pleasure of Allah, it is they who will be, um, whose reward will be multiplied. When people give, yeah, <laughs> They give more as Muslims than they do as atheists. And atheists go on, oh, you don't need God to be generous. Well, apparently you do. We've got here a lot of data that suggests that you're much more likely to give, not just as a, as a Muslim, but as a religious person compared to an atheist. Um, but you're even more likely to be generous as a Muslim than you are if you were a Christian or a Jew. Um, so this is an article from the Times. It says Muslims are Britain's top charity givers. Muslims are among Britain's most generous givers, topping a poll of religious groups that donate to charity, according to new research. Muslims who donated to charity last year gave an average of almost £371 each, with Jewish givers giving on average around 270 Nearly one in ten Jewish givers donated more than 1,000 among Muslim uh, givers, most donated 300 to 500 uh, Atheists, by contrast, donated £116 when they gave to charity, if they gave to charity at all, with the Roman Catholics giving slightly more than 178 and the Christians slightly less than 178, Protestants 202. So at the bottom of the list, you have atheists giving around just near £100. And over three times the amount is given, more than three times the amount is given by Muslims. So you're exponentially more likely to be generous as a Muslim than you are an atheist. Why is that? It's, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out why, if you're an atheist, you might be less generous because you don't see the benefits of it. You're not like you. It's it's a massive sacrifice for you because you don't get anything in return at all. The Muslim, they give so much that it hurts and they give often that you, you're commanded to give zakat, which is an obligation. It's not even a choice. And then on top of that, you give sadaqah extra because Allah commands you to give a loan for his love. Yeah, and you. So we give more, 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 more because it hurts, and more so than the Jew and the Christian. And the Christians, they still they they give nearly double what the atheists, not quite, but on the way to double. And the uh, the Muslim gives nearly double what the Christian gives. Subhanallah. So like, there is there is something about this, and it's not just um, there. Are, there are these sort of racist tropes that that crop in. So there's another article just to address that. New study showed Muslim Americans as vibrant contributors to American philanthropy, despite Islamophobic tropes suggesting that Muslim Americans are more aligned to international causes, like they give all the money to like Pakistan, etc. Only 50% of their givings is focused on such causes, while 85% of their gifts support American charitable causes. Despite being poorer than the average American household, Muslim Americans participated in charitable givings and volunteering at higher levels than the average household. This survey finds that Muslims give more 
towards both faith-based causes and non-faith-based causes than non-Muslims. Overall, Muslim Americans gave $3,200 for charitable giving compared to $1,900 for the general population, which includes the religious, like the, the Christians, um, who are believers in the divine and believe that they will be rewarded, and the atheists. Um, so, like, you know, there's, in Islam, you have so much that, like, you give to the communities. And this is going to be something tied with the duties that Muslims have that builds connections that last, that help communities to thrive and to grow. And when you you look at, you go to churches now, and you're lucky if anyone turns up on Sunday, let alone any other day. And what I was struck when I went to university is that the average day, the mosque would be filled with young men who were away from their families. They could easily not turn up to the prayer and the families would never know. They would never know. They've got like, they, they, they have that freedom in university settings to be able to just give up the prayer. And yet your, your random dhuhr, your random maghrib prayer, your random asr, ran, like the, you would see young men turning up to the mosque and you would have lines of them praying. You would have events and loads of Muslims would turn up. And the Christians have got these huge places of worship right next door to our tiny little cupboards, which are the Muslim prayer rooms. And they can barely get like a row of people in them. They, they, like there is something that Islam has now in the face of the same problems that the Christians are facing, in the face of the same problems that the Jews are facing, that, that the Muslims are doing better at it. Why? What is it about Islam that, that facilitates this kind of behavior? Um, and last of all, Islam has a understanding of the human condition and provides a solid foundation. So Islam offers a solution to both cosmic and existential nihilism. Uh, for example, we, we have this idea, everything was created for a reason. There is no meaninglessness. We have not created the heavens and the earth and everything in between without purpose, as the disbelievers think. So woe to the disbelievers because of the fire. Uh, another verse here, we have not created the heavens and the earth and everything in between except for a purpose, and our is certain to come, so forgive graciously. Another one, uh, we did not create the heavens and the earth and everything in between for sport. We only created them for a purpose, but most of these pagans do not know. Do people think they will be left without purpose? Allah answers this, I did not create jinn and humankind except to worship me. We have a purpose, specifically, and that is to worship the one that created us, because he is worthy of our worship. And if you don't worship the creator, you will inevitably worship something in creation, whether you recognize that as worship or not is irrelevant. There are things that you will value the most. Your life will revolve around them and they turn to dust. However, Allah is eternal. The world is fleeting. These things, if you're not worshiping Allah, whatever it is that you're grasping onto, it's going to slip through your thing, fingers eventually. Death will come. You can pile these things as high as you want. It's not going to matter in the end. You can't take them into the gravy with you. Whereas if you concern yourself with Allah and his pleasure, that will have lasting effects that don't just impact you positively here in the world, but also in the Akhira. And so you have to ask yourself, is atheism really superior? Look at this quote from Richard Dawkins. On the contrary, if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies like the crashing of this bus are exactly what we would expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. Such a universe would neither be good nor evil in intention. It would manifest no intention of any kind. And a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication. Some people are going to get hurt. Others are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect. 
if it is at bottom no design, no purpose, no good and no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. With this kind of mindset, can you really be surprised how the atheist is going to be much less likely to be generous, much less likely to be um, charitable, much less likely to be concerned with the rights of the neighbor, of the family, of the friend, of the community, of people that they don't know, have never experienced, or you know, have no connection to whatsoever. Is, is it much of a surprise that people fall into hedonism of liberal individualism and are concerned more with the mindless pursuit of bodily pleasures than they are of greater sacrifice and communal giving? As much as I and, as much as I dislike Dawkins, I at least appreciate that he appreciate uh, was, was uh, blunt enough to state the implications of his worldview. Uh, unlike many atheists yep. that try to evade the obvious entailments um, uh, of their stance, so at least yeah, no, that, I agree. Credit him for that, at least. <laughs> yeah, no, and and I appreciate the honesty in that as well. And um, and so. We'll, we'll end in, in a second now. I'm just going to read it. So we've mentioned this quote already. So this is the quote where Nietzsche again is talking about the death of God. And he says, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How can we console ourselves? The murderers, all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest thing the world has ever possessed has bled, under the, and death, bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? With what water should we cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What holy games will we have to invent for ourselves? Is the magnitude of this deed not too great for us? Do we ourselves not have to become gods merely to appear worthy of it? And how is that not exactly what you see today with these festivals of atonement? You know, the, the, these raves, these, you know, the, um, these huge, like uh, the Burning Man Festival. You, you see the gatherings of epic proportion. You, uh, football, um, your football and our football. What do you, uh, uh, American football, yeah, okay. which is more handball than it is football um you know, I, 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 I knew you had to take a dig at that so okay. <laughs> i won't say soccer i don't even well. like football <laughs> I, I, i'm not even a football watcher i don't like football either um i'm not really bothered but it, it it's more descriptive than it is anything but um yeah like you see it like how people they need these things to replace like and i'll take a dig here at football british soccer as you you the Americans call it <laughs> like you look at it. You can see that the people are yearning for something like you, you have these like massive gatherings where pe like people as associate themselves with the team. We win. We did it. And they did nothing. They just sat at the sidelines. They were just watching other people do things. And somehow they take responsibility for it because they yearn for this, this community, which the, the society that they live in is taken away from them. They need something collective. They need the sun that they want to revolve around. But at the same time, they want to become gods themselves. They want to, you know, like in, enjoy all of the pleasures and just live this life. They want, they want heaven on earth and they want to try to make that life, you know, the, 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 the life that they would want in Jannah here now. But the problem is, is the law of diminishing returns. Like nothing on earth will satisfy, you know, like the same way you get perfumes, they might smell nice to begin with, but eventually you go nose blind to them. And it's the same with the signs of Allah. The signs are abundant. They are everywhere. Like Allah says in the Quran, we will show them our signs in the universe and within themselves until it becomes clear to them that this Quran is the truth. However, in the same way that, you know, people that don't, they don't reflect on it. They don't put their, 
their nose to their arm to smell anymore. Like we mentioned a few of them. How many are made? I'm talking to you across the pond. Yeah, You're miles away from me. And yet we speak instantly. If I wanted to do this years ago, I would have had to get on a boat and hope I didn't die on this huge treacherous journey across a, an ocean that took however long it took. Or if I wanted to speak to someone across, you know, in, in the Middle East somewhere, I had to send a man and a donkey for months and hope he didn't die. Like there, Amazing things are around us. And the, the whole process of me speaking to you is quite an amazing one. And the devices that we're using to discuss these topics are amazing, but yet they disappear into the background. I don't even notice them. I've not, until I've mentioned it now, I've completely forgot that there's a camera here. I forgot there's a computer screen. I forgot that I'm sat in this weird chair. There's electricity. There's this, there's that. There's all of these amazing things around me. But because I've become so used to them, because they're so abundant and like, and I, I'm so detached from nature, from, uh, you know, the, the things that Allah is, original, um, is, is showing, we can't even see the sky anymore because we've got such bright lights that the stars disappear. You know, like we 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 can't we're not looking at the earth anymore because we're we're too busy with our phones pressed against our faces. We've become blind to the signs, and it only takes someone to just point them out for you to just begin to recognize the strangeness of creation, the strangeness of your existence. And like Allah says, there are signs within the, the heavens and the earth, and within your own selves. If you would just look, if you would just ponder upon them. Um. So we'll end there. There's a lot more to be said on all of these. Very sorry because I recognize we were going on for nearly four hours, and I have a tendency to ramble. And I could I could have done this for much longer, um, but there's a lot more detail, and all of my rambles are in this book. Um, so get a copy. You can get it on Amazon um, and Audible, but you can also get it for free on our website. So if you go to safetyinstitute.org, uh, if you go to forward slash books, it's on there specifically, and um, you can download it for free. Uh, all I would ask is that um, if you do download it for free, please do try to leave honest reviews on Amazon anyway, um, just uh, just so I can get feedback, basically, and so we can see how that goes. Um, but yeah, uh, that's pretty much everything. Uh, Sapiens Institute, we, we're doing a lot more than just this the, these books. We've got other books as well, all of which we make available for free on our website. Um, you can get the audio books for free on SoundCloud as well via our website, um, as well as them being made available on Amazon and Audible. Um, we've also got things like the Lighthouse Project, uh, which is specifically a service that helps people with doubts, um, which I'm the manager of. We mentioned that earlier. Um, and, you know, if you're a Muslim and you, you're not sure if Islam is the truth and, you know, you want to talk to someone about it, if you've got certain objections or if you're engaged in Dawah or if you're just someone interested in Islam or you're an ex-Muslim, whatever it is, if, if you've got questions about whether or not Islam is true or how to convince people that Islam is true, then you can book a meeting. It's completely free. It's private, and you get a one-to-one -one meeting with mentors, one of them being myself, another Hamza Zorsas, Sheikh Fahad, Tazaleem, Dr. Uthman Latif, and, uh, and other brothers that work with us. And it's growing. And it's like I said, it's free, and it's available for you there to use or to share with people you think might benefit from it. Um, we've also got the learning platform. So if you go to learn.sapiensinstitute.org, we've got a number of courses, one of them being on nihilism, which is what this book is based on. Uh, we've got others on the No Doubt course, for example, uh, we have um, courses on Christianity, courses on atheism, the divine reality, advanced hour training, uh, so on and so forth. So Sapiens Institute, we're producing a lot. We've got essays, articles. Um, we, we, we're, we're dipping into everything um, and we're producing more and more content uh, all the time. So do check out the website, check out the Sapiens Institute YouTube channel. Um, make sure to subscribe, follow us on social media. 
um, and just, yeah, just see, see what we're producing, engage with that content. It's there for you. All of it's free. The learning platform is free as well. Professionally filmed content, um, academically sourced, et cetera. The Lighthouse Project, free. The books, free. The articles, free. Um, sometimes we do retreats as well, which are not free just because there's large costs involved. Um, but yeah, we're, we're doing a lot um, and we hope that you can join us on that journey, make use of the content and inshallah share in the reward. Um, and I shall leave it there. You know, for this very educational and um, interesting uh, presentation. I mean, mashallah, you've uniquely covered and researched this subject in a manner uh, I haven't seen before by a Muslim. And I'm sure many of our listeners will benefit greatly um, from this by having learned uh, something new uh, in addition to being better equipped and effective at having discussions with people with nihilistic inclinations, especially from within uh, an Islamic framework. Um, so Jazakallah Khairan once again. Yeah, uh, just, just a point on that as well, sorry. So, uh, this is one of the problems because I think people often, they get bogged down when they're giving dawah in like philosophical argumentation and abstract debates and all of this complex stuff. And often it ends up making the people you're giving dawah to more athe more nihilistic because you, like you're using all of these things and half of the time people don't really understand the arguments they're using or the proper implication or how to deal with it um and like these issues are not addressed at all and I, and I think it's a crying shame and I think if we did start to incorporate this or an understanding of this into the dawah and discussions about the meaning of life and things like that that you you might see that the, you might make a lot of progress with the uh you know the the the, the non-muslim um, now I'm from that environment. I'm from a disbelieving background. My family are all non-Muslim, um, apart from my wife, my child, and no, like I, I, you know, I'm I'm from these environments, and I I'm aware of what's how their minds are ticking, um, and I'm sure like there are others, um, other reverts or other people that are sort of linked into that community that that get it as well. Um, but this this is something that needs to become more crucial or more um more used than it is at the moment like stop turning people's heads over with mad argumentation that goes on for you know ironically the arguments about infinite regress can go on ad infinitum and sometimes it's not what people need not everything needs to be addressed in terms of rational argument, not to say that there isn't rational argument or that religion is irrational. That's a completely different argument. It's to say that there are different paths for different people and that we're not robots. We're not just input data, bebop, bebop, this argument, this argument, get shahada at the end of it. That humans have minds, but they also have hearts. And that you've got to not just convince them intellectually, but you also have to turn the heart because people that they might know they might believe, but if their heart does not face it, they will not accept it. In the same way that shaitan, yeah, Allah Azawajal, like he knew Allah exists. He knows Allah exists. He was, yeah, he witnessed that, you know, that Allah is an existing being. There was no doubt about it. He, didn't, he doesn't need intellectual arguments to convince him of the existence of God. Yet for some reason, he still disobeyed. He's still among the disbelievers because his heart wasn't facing in the right direction. It was... Uh, yeah, so that's something to take into consideration. Uh, we'll, we'll end it at, uh, on that note. And I'd just like to thank you again, Akhi uh, Yusuf, for this uh, you know, a very educational presentation. And 
again for, for your efforts. And with that, I'm going to bid you and our listeners fair, uh, farewell with the Islamic greetings. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.